0: If you want to get the most of your dog in your training sessions, you need nutrition that holds nothing back. Yukanuba's new premium performance lineup is built with the nutrients dogs need to help unleash their maximum potential. That starts with providing energy that matches their efforts, supporting optimal nutrient delivery and supporting post-exercise recovery. Check out the new Yukonuba premium performance lineup and find your dog's fuel at SportingDog.com. all right and i also want to say thank you and give a special shout out to my newest sponsor aya fine guns a fine shotgun is itself a work of art as individual as its owner why choose an aya well Every AYA gun is handmade uh, by our master gun makers with meticulous attention and precision. Each constituent part is carefully shaped and little by little, the parts come together until a perfect hole is created. Barrel, action, locks, trigger, stock, foreign. An AYA gun is a marvel of gun making engineering, a coming together of perfectly fitted and calibrated parts. To ensure an unequaled experience with a reliability and longevity which defy the passing of time choose a today all right and then one of my last title sponsors trinity kennels trinity Breton's. um guys thank y'all for for those who have put deposits down at trinity Breton's. i've y'all have reached out to me and let me know how how convinced and, and confident y'all are in their breedings um, of epignol Britons. Um at trinity Bretons, they strive to raise train and produce and reproduce all that are excellent uh, representations of the breed both in field and confirmation over the past 30 years they've continued to study learn and implement all that they can do into their breeding program and philosophy as well as their training program Um, It culminated in being awarded the National Elevage winner in the 2020 CEBUS National Conclave and Field Trial in South Carolina. So check out Trinity Buitons today, guys. Thank you so much. All right, guys. And last and new to the podcast team, I want to welcome Biomatrix Supplements. And I want to just give a special thank you to Julie Younts from uh, getting me introduced to the product. Um, And I wanna say thank you to my buddy Andrew Bozeman down at Deco Plantation um, that also got me introduced to Biomatrix, got me introduced to Julie. Um, I am really excited about this new sponsorship, guys. Let me tell y'all a little bit about it, Biomatrix Supplements. They, are, they, they, they got the ingredients that make a difference, and I can speak to that because I've been using it for the last month and a half now. Um, you know, I, I was able to end the season um, with it with my dogs. I've been running them and putting a whole lot of miles and stuff on them. Um, and I have noticed a significant difference in Vegas's performance. Um, but, anywho, you know, Biomatrix has the ingredients that make a difference. Biomatrix is made from a proprietary blend of camelina oil and natural ingredients that support the musculoskeletal, gastrointestinal, cardiovascular, uh, <laughs> metabolic, and overall health of your dog. That was a lot, man. That was a whole lot of stuff that they do. But anyway, they also knock out the omega fatty acids as a natural omega-3, 6, and 9 fatty acid supplement. Camelina oil naturally helps maintain a healthy inflammatory response and supports dogs with joint tenderness due to everyday activity. It promotes cardiovascular health as well as brain, nerve, and eye health. And they just keep going, guys. (laughs) I mean... Then we got to talk about the inflammatory pathways that vitamin E content in Biomatrix strengthens the gastrointestinal system um, that it strengthens acts as a natural. It acts Biomatrix acts as a natural immune booster. The supplements support your dog and help them move better and have more energy and thrive. Now, that's all the scientific, the, the, the scientific stuff. Um, about Biomatrix, that again we all know and love, and I can talk real all, all deeply about. Um, but in short, guys, like the way I understand it, is it's just a better performance formula. That's just the short way of me saying it. Um, and I'll, I'll say this, and and I'll end on this note with Biomatrix. Um, I actually have a, a whole lot to say about them, um, and I kind of been taking notes on my process and, and my development and, and me putting it into my dogs um i really like how natural the product is okay last thing i want to kind of talk about with Biomatrix is the fact that it is clinically engineered for daily use to promote optimized health and performance is specifically formulated to support healthy inflammatory response to keep your dog comfortable during all stages of life whether you're four-legged companion young and playful or getting older and slowing down Biomatrix will help them feel their best and i absolutely mean that i know they mean that um julie and i spoke for hours um at a point and just really getting to know the product every question that i had she was able to answer um with not only an experience-based point point of view but a a fact-based you know science-based point of view um, that I can't articulate I was not good in biology class But I do know When my dogs are performing at their tip top uh, Shape and Biomatrix is helping do that I like the combination of that um, With my You Premium performance dog food um, And good water man You know my dogs are looking good Their coats are healthy I'm just really excited about everything That um biomatrix is bringing to the table to supplement the good feed that i'm already giving them and of course i always want to thank my my affiliates lion country supply dakota 283 kennels and garmin fishing hunt for always supporting the podcast and 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 just being again role models and leaders in this community and and Really bringing, bringing new products into the up world, Upland world by storm. So thank you guys as always. And I'm looking forward to getting into this podcast. All right, guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Gundog Notebook podcast. This is your host, Darrell Smith, coming to you late. <laughs> Real late in the week. Um, late by about two weeks, matter of fact. But um, I wanted to... Apologize for being late, but also share my excitement that Ashley and I are about to move very soon. So packing up, moving the whole family to a much bigger property um, than we are now. Probably about 10, 15 minutes away from where we are. Um, love it. Love the house. Love everything about it. And even the owner is a setter man. He never had any um, that I know of, but come to find out a um, house. Guy's getting pretty old, and, and and he told me that I was one of two dog men or or, or or bird dog trainers that he ever met in his life. He's 90 years old, and um, we got to talking and, um, you know, just kind of in passing. And he asked me, he was like, well, what kind of bird dogs do you have? And I was like, I got two pointers and I got a lab. Um, and he was like, no setters? <laughs> I was like, well i got one on the way whenever it comes but he's uh super excited and i'm I'm glad to be moving but what that also means is new dogs means new kennels and i will be um expanding the kennels adding at least two more hint hint wink wink so i'm adding at least two more stalls to what i have now dropping concrete um the, the the week that we get there um you know and i got a few last little projects coming up and so on and so forth, you know, coming down the pipeline. But when we talk about kennels, I also want to kind of move into crates. Um, And by crates, I mean Dakota 283 um, crates, dog crates. There is something called Dakota Guard that I want to talk to you guys about real quick. Um, It's antimicrobial um, protection that is being used in the Dakota 283 kennels now. So with the, the, the events of last year, um, Greg Greg Cronkite, founder of the company, just figured that the idea of sanitation and germ awareness were pretty much at the forefront of everybody's eyes. So this is kind of where Dakota Guard, this, this new product or feature of the kennels comes in. And Dakota Guard is just an FDA and EPA approved antimicrobial Um, additive that is included in small quantities during a product's production. This results in what Dakota 283's products have that protects your pet's health and safety from the invisible world. When I read a little bit further, Dakota Guard has also been proven highly effective against MRSA, Salmonella, Listeria, E. coli, Staph infection, because I cannot pronounce the entire word. <laughs> Staphylococcus, whatever. Um, basically, many germ positive or, 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 or gram negative organisms and dozens of them um, that are common, and a lot of them are, are incredibly dangerous organisms. Um, the product is life la- or long lasting, and, and it should last throughout the duration of the the life of the product and it provides 98 percent of antimicrobial protection which is dope i actually never thought about that um when it came to kennels you know i like a good kennel and, and i like dakota 283 for what they were already bringing to the table um so this is just another way that dakota 283 is just keeping their commitment to keeping your pets safe and fulfilling the mission of unparalleled pet protection and our dog's health, safety, and all kinds of stuff like that that kind of falls under that whole unparalleled pet protection uh, umbrella. So you can read a lot more about Dakota Guard um, at Dakota283.com, and and again, don't forget my promo code, all right, it's uh, TGDN10, all right, use that at checkout. The other thing I want to talk about is something I'm really excited about and will be coming to Atlanta, Alpharetta, Georgia on April 24th, and that is the Project Upland and Backcountry Hunters and Anglers collaboration again, along with Endless Migration, you know, the other waterfowl sector of Project Upland and the Northwoods Collective, but we got a 2000 miles film tour. and. I guess why I'm excited about it, number one, again, they're coming to Alpharetta, which is dope because I did not make (laughs) the public grouse film down in Thomasville when it was down there because I was literally on the other side of the the state. But the 2,000 Miles Film Tour is an hour-long feature film that will be tied together by the traveling of Jake Terry, my good old buddy Jake Terry, running Endless Migration and doing a lot of photography. Photography. Um, that y'all are so familiar with, but Jake Terry loads his pack of retrievers, his cameras, his shotgun, and a couple of cases of ammo into his truck to meet up with some friends and family along the Central Flyway. It was also directed by one of my favorite videographers, and uh man, the 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 the, the real MVP, Wilbur Sensing. Um, Award winning filmmaker of Public Grouse, as we said before, and produced the film will be produced by the Northwoods Collective, the creative agency behind Project Upland and Endless Migration. Um, it promises to be an unrivaled cinematic experience. That's big, man. That's, that's big words there, but I know it will be. Um, it comes on the heels of the success of Public Grouse. Um and is powered by Project Upland and BHA. Um, So February of 2020, Endless Migration and BHA have teamed up to go ahead and pop off that good old spring tour um, here in 2021. So guys, stay tuned for, for everything that's coming your way as far as BHA and Project Upland down the pipelines. I wanna make sure that y'all are tuned in. I will absolutely, absolutely be um, at the film tour on the 24th in Alpharetta. Um, I wanna thank everyone that is in so- in association with the film. That is, of course, the delightful Yukonuba sporting dog who my dogs absolutely enjoy the feed every day, day in and day out. Um, Lucky Duck Premium decoys and kennels, uh, Migra Ammunition, uh, attendees will have the chance to win door prizes from film supporters in addition to our friends at Fish Pond USA and C4 Calls. Um, ticket packages with premiums from Onyx, Project Upland, Yukonuba, and BHA will also be available. Um, and please take a moment to visit and support the sponsors that made the project possible. You can read more about it at B or backcountryhuntersandanglers.org. So, you guys got a lot on your plate coming up. I know that there's a lot uh, on my plate coming up. Got a few films coming out with me involved from X um, and uh, Project Upland coming out this year. So stay in tune for that. I've got some stuff down the pipeline with Orvis. I've got some stuff down the pipeline with my good folks at Filson. Um, you know, it's all just one really, really, really collaborative, collective community. And wow, that was dope. I use that like collaborative, collective community. That was slick. Anyway. um, Yeah, just look out for all of this stuff, guys. <laughs> I ain't going to keep y'all any more than I already have. We're at like 13 minutes now and I don't want to talk your head off anymore. So anyway, we have Alex Sparks on the line from snowbound kennels and Alex breaks down you know a, 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 what he would consider a newer way you know and possibly a better way of, of, of dog training um, as he states it and and I thought it was pretty interesting um, he's very thorough and I appreciate his descriptions. so you know just hang in there for a good long podcast and I know it'll be good. Um, Alec has definitely some has developed definitely has definitely developed some just non conventional ways of, of working bird dogs. But I was introduced to, to Alec from um, my good buddy Charlie Jordan at Missing Sucks, and Alec has been helping Charlie, um, kind of you know work through some of the things that, that Charlie's got going on with his young pups from uh Omar Mera, who, if y'all heard that podcast way back. Um, that was really good So uh, Charlie has those pups Sydney and Violet Coming from Omar Down in Ecuador Some of the original Strains of Pointers And Alec is here Helping out So tune in He gives a, a, a pretty Pretty thorough description Of kind of what he does So hang in there Stay tuned And let me know What you like At the end of the episodes, please go in and and rate and review. I don't ask for that a whole lot. But, you know, if you get on iTunes, rate and review. Let me know what you think. Um, Shoot me an email. I'm always game to hear what you guys have to say about the podcast. I appreciate the just outpouring of support, um, especially in this very, very, very busy time that I have going on in life right now. Um, But nevertheless, we'll transition and we will keep this show on the road so guys here we go with alex sparks of snowbound kennels on the gundog notebook podcast here we go stay tuned and i'll catch y'all on the flip side Sparks, everybody. This is the Gun Dog Notebook Podcast. Um, we are on the line with Mr. Alex Sparks. How are you, sir? I am excellent,
1: and I'm very honored to be on your podcast. And thank you very much for having me.
0: Well, I didn't, I already didn't start well because I totally told you uh I was gonna be way more organized than what I was today. <laughs> so <laughs> that is no worries uh, I, I I know that is not a reflection of uh you know any of my writing okay I'm a lot more organized in that and uh as from writer to writer um you know let don't don't judge me on that one that's all I got to say
1: <laughs> well I, I spent all I spent all day juggling clients and dogs so uh-huh. i we both had our hands full, and it's great. We can get together and have a conversation now.
0: You said you were teaching clients all day. What were you teaching them?
1: Well, clients and dogs. Um, I have a variety of clients. Um, I train a wide variety of different um, disciplines in the dog training world. Okay. And I had a number of different clients here, a uh, wide variety of dogs, working with them in addition to the dogs here in full board training which is really the foundation of my business you know okay. people put dogs with me to train um and uh I still try to help people out with sort of, on a sort of private lesson basis uh in addition
0: okay okay so you got like a like an Alex Sparks school of bird dogs kind of sort of
1: it's not only bird dogs, you know. I I, I work with retrievers. Okay. I help people with with their pet dogs. Okay, and a personal interest of mine. I don't do it professionally, but a personal interest of mine is uh, working canines and protection dogs. Um, in addition to a a pointer and a Labrador, I own a German Shepherd and two Belgian Malinois.
0: So tell, let's back up because I've always been really um, interested in in protection dogs, right and Kind of give me some where do, where does protection dog work and bird dog work kind of overlap for you? Um I, I had a buddy of mine when I first started podcasting way, way, way back a long time ago. Um And I actually went to one of his bite dog training uh workshops and it was really cool. So how did you get into that?
1: Well, um I actually the first dogs my family had as a kid growing up were German Shepherds. OK, Those are the first. I remember. Okay. Uh, Jumping forward many, many, many years, um, uh, part of my business, maybe 25% is what I call all-breed obedience, okay? Um, uh, Several years ago, I had a client in Virginia that sent me their young German Shepherd to train just for off-leash obedience, you know, house pet dogs. I had previously trained a um, hunting dog for them, uh, so they sent the dog up, and I really liked this German Shepherd. He was a great dog; he had a great personality, and he was in full board training for a couple months. But we just let him live in the house. You yeah. know, we I liked him; he was a nice dog. Long story short, um, he went back to Virginia. They called me up about two months later and just said that due to some family changes, uh, they didn't think that they were the best home for that dog now and uh, they would offer him to me. And I said, I'd love to own him. I got him just strictly as a pet because I thought he was a cool dog, but they had talked about doing some, uh, IPO. It used to be called Schutzen. Then it was Mm -hmm. called IPO. It's, uh, the tracking, the obedience and the bite work on the uh, jute sleeve that the helper wears on his left arm. And, Honestly, I was probably like a lot of people that don't know anything about protection work. You know, what's the big deal about that? You get a vicious dog and they bite people. That's protection work. You know, that's like saying you get a bird dog, they point birds. How hard can that be? Or I get a retreater, they retreat. Well, what is there to training? You know, they already do it naturally. Right. So. I got this dog, and I started looking into protection training, and I realized how little I know, knew and how incorrect all my assumptions were. Uh, for about the past 10 years, on my winter training trip south, I've been in the Southern Pines, North Carolina area, <clears throat> uh, lots of protection training going on down there. So when I was down there on my winter training trip, ostensibly mostly with pointy dogs and uh, retrievers, uh, I connected with some uh, protection trainers and started learning more about protection training. And I'll tell you something: the most uh, the most striking thing I realized right off the bat.
0: Okay, what's that?
1: The retriever world and the pointing dog world is they're fairly heavily compulsion-based in their training. Force fetch, electric collars, you know, uh, uh, it's, 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 it's a fair amount of pressure. And now, we has can get it always it, been
0: that way, though?
1: I think it's been worse. It's actually gotten better, but it's still, compared with some of the other dog disciplines, fairly heavy, heavy compulsion sport um, and training. And when I got involved with the protection dog training, it was instantly ap- apparent why that was. You get after a bird dog, you know, pointer, setter, beazelah. You get after a retriever. Uh, use too much physical pressure, physical pressure, collar pressure that maybe is unfair, maybe not well understood, mm-hmm. maybe a little overzealously or emotionally administered. Right. And the dogs, the dogs take it at their own expense. Okay, the tail goes down, the ears go back, the dogs sell up, and you know they kind of look miserable. And a lot of people go, "Well, that's the dog's fault. They can't handle the training program. It's the dog." Okay, in the protection dog world, there's a little expression called "coming up the leash." Okay, uh, a lot of those dogs, such as Belgian Malinois, Dutch Shepherds, some lines of German Shepherds, um, you uh, you use. But those dogs view as overzealous or unfair pressure, they'll, they come right up the leash and attack you. I mean, it's just, it's just as simple as that. Um, and so I ran into a group of trainers and a whole training methodology that was much more sort of, I would call it, intellectually curious about the training process and how to get these dogs trained that you certainly didn't want to try and train old school toe of the boot and using things like remote collars and things like that. You needed to be pretty darn artful because you were in serious danger, potential (laughs) danger, if if you didn't. Uh, And that was uh, immediately apparent. How that has helped me with my other training, I started out, professionally 29 years ago as a retriever-only trainer. Okay. My business was called Snowbound Retrievers. Um, a few years later, um, how, let's jump back. Uh, a couple of years into that, I got my first uh, pointer, an English pointer. I okay. literally ended up buying the first English pointer I ever saw in my life. I couldn't believe how graceful the dog was, how athletic it was. I just had to own it. When the guy said he wanted to sell it, I'm like, put it in my dog truck, man. I, I got to buy that. Yeah. Uh, my wife came home that night and I said, uh, oh, Sarah, I bought an English pointer. She literally said to me, an English what? And I said, stereotypically, making assumptions off what I had read, I said, oh, don't worry. They're half-wild, non-affectionate kennel dogs. This dog will just live in the kennel. It's not like we have another house dog. That's just the way those dogs are. I think it was probably three weeks later that dog was sleeping under the covers on our bed, <laughs> <laughs> and I was off to the races owning uh, owning pointing dogs.
0: So, but so the... you mean to tell you mean to tell me, contrary to everybody's belief, that pointers can actually be house dogs, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. and they are not the fire breathing dragons that most folks think they are.
1: You know, I've had a wide, I've owned a wide variety of uh, pointing of English Pointers. Uh-huh. Uh, I've owned one German Shorthair. I trained any breed of pointing dog. Uh, I trained tons of Shorthairs, you know, Beaselas, a lot of different versatile breeds, setters. Uh, but I have personally mainly uh, or primarily owned English Pointers. And even the craziest, biggest running horseback bred dogs um, that I've owned, they've been house dogs. Okay. Uh, And they're, they're all great. You know, Um, a lot of it is as how they're raised, how they're socialized. And Mm -hmm. there's a difference between, you know, you raise a dog in a kennel with a five gallon pail of water and self feed and you cut it loose with older dogs and hope it's going to punch holes in the horizon. Don't expect it to come in the house and curl up on the couch and go to sleep. Right. But (laughs) you raise those dogs, raise those dogs in the house and you socialize them. They still. My experience is they still punch holes in the horizon, but they also can sleep on the bed.
0: Yeah. Well, mine, mine, are, mine is definitely that uh, f- flaming fire-breathing dragon uh, <laughs> because yeah. he sits outside with a pail and a five. You know, and you know, and I don't know. There's something about that that kind of wild to me, though. I don't know why I like it.
1: Um. The, I I love it too. Um, you know, I, I've, I've always liked performance dogs, uh-huh. uh, field trials I owned Labradors. Mm-hmm. I got into bird dogs. I like pointers. Now I fool with some protection dogs, not professionally, but as a personal interest. I have Belgian Alamo. You know, I like those high end dogs. Yeah. Um, I've trained a variety of other breeds. I've trained sighthounds. hounds. I currently have a borzoi in my
0: kennel. You should really? see that dog. You should see the dog run. It's just unbelievable. So tell me, okay. So you 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 really getting me now. Tell me about that dog. How, now, how did you come into that one?
1: Uh, it was owned by uh, a local a local person who I knew, and it had just become kind of a handful, like so many pet dogs. OK, in the in the pet dog, boy, we're going off on tangents now. Yeah. <laughs> um, let, let me just back up a bit and, and I'll get back to the Borzoi. But let me just tell you how training different dogs has helped. I started out as a retriever only trainer and I was very interested in AKC field trials. Mm-hmm. So I'm running AKC field trials with uh, with a bunch of dogs and I started to have some bird dogs on my on my truck. And I literally had clients say to me, Oh, Alec, you shouldn't have those bird dogs. You don't look like a serious retriever trainer. Okay? Because I was I was a novice pro and you don't look serious. And I'm like, well, you know, when I go to the bank and deposit a check, they've never asked me what kind of dog I train to get that. <laughs> <laughs> and on top of that, I like them, but most importantly, what I'm learning as I'm more into pointing dogs. Is helping my retriever training. Okay, because I've always said to train like a field trial retriever to a high level. You need to have a lot of technical knowledge. Okay, there's a lot going on there through the training program with uh, force fetch, three hand casts, force on a pile, single T, double T, force on the water, single T on the water, swim by, transition blinds, concepts. Of blinds like down the shore, out to sea, over or past the point. There's a lot of technical stuff there. Right. In my opinion, and my experience, to train a bird dog, you just need a lot more finesse. Yep. Because if you if you do something wrong with those guys and they say, Well, I'm not gonna go out there, I'm gonna walk by your side, right? You know, it's it's pretty much done.
0: Well, so and that's I, I'm 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 quick to, to get to calling running a bird dog in art because that's what it is. Yeah, so you know.
1: So training the bird dogs refine my program with the retrievers, and the protection dogs have helped just further refine my training uh, overall. Because you you really need to be kind of more careful and artful, and I'm an intuitive trainer. I've been around dogs my whole life. I'm sixty three years old, but Wait, probably wouldn't. not. A rabbit-
0: what do you Probably mean you're an, what do you mean you're an intuitive trainer
1: um I didn't I'd never even heard of the four quadrants of dog training till twelve years ago I'm not so many trainers today uh, they're talking about science and the four quadrants and how we're gonna use that and uh, positive punishment and negative reinforcement and you know they, they throw all around a lot of those terms. I grew up with dogs, retrievers that wore choke chains and we put them on a leash and we pulled them around. And I got in with a bunch of trainers, uh, professional trainers that spent the summer in my hometown to get out of the heat in the South. And I watched them train and I asked questions and they wet mur- nursed me through the whole process. And it was just, you know, you, you kind of train. But when I got involved in the protection world, I got in this world of trainers that were much more into the science of training and those things like the four quadrants of training and stuff. And uh, the only time I'll pat myself on the back is a lot of the things that I questioned in conventional dog training doctrine over the years and said, I don't think that's right. I'm going to try it this way. It seemed to be successful, now that I've learned some of the science end of it, the science actually backs up what I kind of intuitively thought was an important aspect of training. Okay, okay, okay. Because there, I mean, there is science behind it. Um, dogs learn through operant conditioning or classical conditioning, and I'm not I'm not really well schooled on that. I'm not an academic of scientific training method or terminology, but Anytime I start throwing around any of those terms at all, I hear people say things like, well, that's just psychobabble, okay? That, that's not training. That's psychobabble. Psychobabble is a code word for I have no idea what you're talking about, and I don't want to learn. I have no interest in learning. But there is scientific facts on how dogs learn to do things and what they may do and what they may not do. okay
0: right. so and, and what're so what, what you're saying is your intuition was proven you know these things that happen to dogs and the who what where when and why you understood that long before any of the science came around and the science then came around and backed up what you were already figuring out.
1: I think the science was there. I just was unaware of it until about a dozen years ago. Okay. Okay? Um, Like using a collar. Okay. Use an electric collar. Are you using it as negative reinforcement or positive punishment? (laughs) (laughs) If you had asked me that 12 years ago, I I don't know. I'm using momentary sometimes and continuous other times and multiple paths other times. Well, there's real life names and concepts for those things from the scientific, uh, community and and uh canine um people who study canine cognition okay
0: so is Um, it all right so as far as canine cognition then like is that something that maybe isn't discussed enough in 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 the the world of bird dogs like you know is that is 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 there a, a missing component there
1: Whoa, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, (laughs) And here's here's an interesting thing. I am up in the state of Vermont. I've never won a national championship. Um, I ran a bunch of retriever trials and did pretty darn well. I ran some bird dog trials with my personal dogs uh, because I enjoyed it at the time. I've never called myself a field trial trainer when it comes to bird dogs, mm-hmm. and yet I have clients that run a wide variety of trials, from walking trials to horseback trials, and they do they, they do pretty darn well, okay? Um, what I have seen is that dog training is really steeped in tradition, okay? It's, uh, this is how I saw my father do it, or my great-grandfather do it, or... This is how the pros in my area have always done it, all right? And it's kind of handed down. And honestly, through the lens that I look at it, a lot of it really hasn't changed in a long time. There's a lot of entrenched doctrine and a lot of people that you could say have, uh, have more respectful credentials than I do. Um, that will say, no, you can't do that. And, you know, a minute ago, we were talking about borzois, but now I'll just throw something (laughs) out there.
0: Oh, I want to, well, well, I guess what I'm interested in as far as the borzoi kind of does pertain to this whole idea of canine cognition, right? Like the benefit of training a lot of different dogs is you understanding a lot of different dogs and their different ways of performance, which wouldn't then, enhance your knowledge of canine cognition because you're learning a lot of different ways of doing a job does that make sense
1: yeah i I mean i i honestly think i mean i know great great trainers who i respect tremendously who will only train certain breeds of dogs of certain temperaments okay and they're fabulous with those dogs but Honestly, I know a lot of trainers, if they walked out to their kennel tomorrow and there was like five Belgian Malamois in there, most of them would be at the emergency room before the morning without getting stitches, right. okay? Um, not to say they aren't good trainers, but the only kind of know what you know, and I honestly, for starters, I enjoy it. I enjoy the different dogs. I enjoy the different clients. Um, I think it bleeds off. From one discipline to another, that what I learn with a certain uh, a discipline of dogs helps me with another discipline. And I'm not an academic. I have a high school education, and it, I wasn't a particularly good student to say the least. Um, but for some reason, I ended up a very intellectually curious person. Um, I kind of know want to know the whys of something, and although we all tend to think we can look at things really critically and analytically. um, There's a lot of science that says we really don't. If you want to get into human psychology, we tend to view things very asymmetrically.
0: Uh, Okay. Come come on now. Break that down even more. (laughs) We can't just leave (laughs) that one now. We tend to pay attention to things that we agree with. Okay. Okay. We tend
1: to ignore things that we don't agree with. So, we humans have this thing, we can only make decisions off something called the availability heuristic. So if the only Italian restaurant you have ever eaten at in your life is the Olive Garden, and someone says, Hey what's the best Italian restaurant? You're gonna go, Olive Garden. Right. Because that's all you know. But if you're from Italy, you've eaten Italian food your entire life, you could probably have a different opinion because your availability heuristic much 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 larger right so we can really only make decisions based sort of off what we know and if you have a limited knowledge base it's going to be more difficult because we as i said i'm kind of a psychology junkie
0: i apologize no you're good i'm loving it i'm eating this up Look, I we got my tend- notepad out now, so y- you keep on going. <laughs> we, humans tend
1: to take information in that agrees with what we already think or what we assume. We tend to ignore information that, that, that doesn't agree with what we think. Um, if, we're in, if we encounter an opposing opinion to a deeply held thought or ideology, it creates, it's called cognitive dissonance. We don't feel good. You know, I want to, I, this is what I think. Someone is telling me the opposite. I get this uncomfortable feeling. And rather than change my mind, I'm going to dig in and defend my point even more. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I offer you team sports, politics, and religion. Okay. Talk about people dug into their, what they think. Okay. And so, a lot of times when people make what they think are a good critical decision, I've looked at all the evidence, and I've made this good, logical, critical decision, it's based on such asymmetrical information that they've taken in. It's really not very balanced. And quite ironically, as a, as a very poor student, the only course in high school, I remember I liked and enjoyed and excelled at, for some unknown reason, was called math logic. And there was not a number involved in math logic. We We looked at advertisements, we looked at statements, we looked at quotes, and we were supposed to determine the accuracy or veracity or truth of those statements and quotes and advertisements. And I distinctly remember straight A students Um, just were mystified, and here I am, not an academic at all, going, well, this is obvious. How come you guys don't get it? For whatever reason, my brain has always worked in a way – that i think i'm pretty good maybe better than the than some people at looking at information and taking it for what it is without considering the source and try to view it with less bias and Whoa. i think that's really helped me dog training
0: and i and i wanted to to kind of touch on that too you actually led me into something about your writing so you write for upland almanac and i got a chance to read your unedited work <laughs> kind of <laughs> in a very last minute kind of way but um I read through everything that you sent me and what, what I do like about the way that you talk about, you know, your thoughts and philosophy and training and and things like that is you pretty much lay it out there flat on the line. There's nothing you kind of shooting straight from the hip, you know, Um, the way that you speak about, you know, some of your, um, topics, They're just very, they're put very plainly. Like it's almost too obvious.
1: That's just how how I am. I don't have a dog in this fight. I don't breed dogs. Okay. I've never offered a dog at stud. This is the way I see stuff. This is the way I've done stuff. This is my experience in how it works out and what I produce. This is what I see is maybe, maybe a little bit more, not revolutionary, just slightly more evolutionary way of nudging the doctrine in a little bit, uh, kicking that can a little bit further down the road. And I'm happy to have anybody any day of the week call me up and call me to task and say, hey, Alec, I read that you said you, you wrote that you use collars around birds on the woe command. And that is impossible. You'll create a host of problems, it can't be done. And I'm happy to talk about that with somebody because for 27 years, I've been using electric collars on the whoa command around birds and it doesn't create blinking. It doesn't create lying down. It doesn't create false pointing. It doesn't create sitting unless the person pressing the buttons is doing something wrong, okay? It may not be wrong in their eyes, but in the dog's eyes, it is. I break stuff down when I train. I'm going to occasionally throw out more sort of sciencey words. I compartmentalize stuff. I teach different behaviors separately and then I put them together. Okay? Um, I will try to introduce new things in a non distracting environment and then more sciencey talk using successive approximation, I generalize that skill. So I don't, I've tried barrels, I've tried tables, I've tried place boards, I've used woe posts, I've tried all those things over the years, okay? I know they work, clearly they work. I teach my dogs to woe on the ground, on a check court, okay? Using very, very, very mild pressure, I think there's a lot of advantages to doing that, and I teach them to woe, and then I gradually introduce greater and greater distractions to their compliance with the wo command at a rate of progress that suits the individual dog.
0: Is that it Now, is that, is that is that what you mean? Successive approximation, right? Okay, yep.
1: and right. generalizing showing them that they need to do this behavior in a variety of locations and environments. Okay. And you know, uh, you may have already some listeners rolling their eyes and going, what the heck is this guy talking about? Okay. So in a nutshell, I teach my dogs to woe on the ground, moving forward on a checkboard in front of me about six feet away. For many people, they set their dogs up, and then woe means don't move. My dogs, right off the bat, learn that woe means come to a stop, okay? It's on the ground. It's where the dog's bold. It's where the dog's comfortable. It's where the dog's confident. I would never try to get a dog to teach a dog to woe through fear or intimidation, okay? And you can just extrapolate from incomplete information what training a dog to woe using fear or intimidation might look like. I wanna teach my dogs to woe, okay? It's done on a check cord, along with turning side to side, okay? Getting them to change direction and also recall, okay? So I'm gonna train, yes, I'm not compartmentalizing Those three commands, they're trained in unison while the dog is out on a check cord. It's the boat, I'm the water skier, it's pulling on the check cord, it's pulling on my 26-year-old dog's unlimited check cord. I've gone through three brass snap swivels in 26 (laughs) years with the same check cord. Mm -hmm. They're pulling on that against a flat neck collar. If you have a sensitive dog, You run the collar looser further down their neck as long as the dog doesn't flip and turn out of it. You have to be careful of that. If it's a loose collar down near their shoulders, it makes it easier for them to pull. If you have a real barn burner, big strong dog, I get, I trained an eight-year-old Czech Fusik, which is a versatile dog, eight years old when he arrived here. Um, No training whatsoever. He went through My program, very, very well, big, strong, powerful dog. He wore a flat durathane collar a little higher on his neck where I could have a little bit more control over him, okay? Turn the dog side to side on voice and whistle, recall it voice and whistle, teach it, whoa, means come to a stop in front of me. The dogs get a foundation of that. Then I overlay or use the remote collar simultaneously so as I'm giving a tug on the check cord, to ask them to turn, to ask them to woe, to ask them to recall or come. I use the hear command, but generally voice and whistle for both turning and recall. As I give a, a little tug on that, um, on that check cord, I give them a bump with a remote caller. I generally will be using momentary, and I start all the instructions that you get with a caller says start at the lowest level, you can see the dog response. People are looking for eye blinks, head twitches, uh, tail drop, ear movements, holding their breath. Uh, people aren't, a lot of people aren't as observant as they need to be to see the smaller uh, body language. It's a lot of those same sig- signals that I just mentioned, but much more subtly. I think a lot of people start at too high an intensity. And I want to start at a level the dog can physically feel, but certainly isn't intimidating because I'm not trying to use the collar to get any particular behavior. I'm still using the check cord to guide the behavior. Okay. It would be called in the science world contextual learning because when your dog's on a check cord, you have physical control over the dog. I can pull it towards me. I can stop it on whoa. I could make it turn, you know, with a retriever or a, a, a flushing dog, you could make it sit or hop or hold it at heel. Mm-hmm. An electric collar is just a sensation. It gives no meaning to the dogs whatsoever. So when someone cuts their dog loose and says, well, I'm going to get my dog to come today and their dog runs out there and they call it, and they just give it a big bump with the electric collar, that's non-contextual. The dog has no idea what that sensation means, and I have literally seen dogs run off because they think it comes from the ground. That's why those invisible barrier fences work. They don't know what's going on, but I go to the edge of the lawn, and something unpleasant happens, so I'm not going to go to the edge of the lawn. So that dog's out there a couple hundred yards, you holler its name, you give it a big bump with the collar. I've literally seen dogs run the other direction. They don't necessarily go, oh, he's using an electric collar. I got to come back to my owner. Unfortunately, a lot of dogs do come back or they keep going up in intensity until the dog is so fearful for what's happening to it that it comes back to the, the handler. You know, 1960 called and they want their training back. Okay, <laughs> There's better, fairer, more successful ways to train dogs where you aren't leaving it up to the dog to figure out what to do.
0: Well, They're more that, difficult. so I guess, you know, that's something I'm curious about with you. Um, right. At what point did you start to realize that your training needed to change? Like, how often does that happen?
1: Could you repeat that,
0: please? Like when because you do have such an effective method, but you've taken so many different routes to learning. At what point did you do you start to begin to be like, all right, well, what I'm doing is it needs to change. Like, when do you make improvements on your own practice?
1: After being a professional for twenty nine years, I'm still working my tail off every day to optimize the training program for each individual dog Mm -hmm. because that's the art to it. As I said before, a lot of excellent trainers can get certain dogs of certain temperaments trained. And quite frankly, high-drive dogs mask a lot of less-than-optimal training because they have so much drive, you can kind of do a lot of sloppy, heavy-handed stuff with them and they're willing to put up with it and keep going because they have such
0: drive. Okay? Have, you, have, you, ha, have you been able to, do you get more dogs like that or not?
1: I get dogs like that, but I also get um, poorly bred house pets with virtual no desire or experience. Okay. Yeah. And in a lot of programs, those dogs would just get kind of hammered and washed out and ruined and mm-hmm. sent home. Up here, where I train dogs from all over the country. I have clients in Texas, um, clients in California, Iowa, all over the place. But the bulk of my dogs come from the Northeast, um, not even Vermont, but the Northeast. And I don't have the luxury of washing dogs out. Mm-hmm. And I don't have the interest in washing dogs out. If I have a very, very difficult dog to train for whatever reason, he has so much drive or so little drive, he's difficult to train. I just say to myself, I need to be a better trainer. Yeah. I don't go, oh, well, you know, that, that dog, he can't take the training. He can't take the program. Okay. I, I want to figure out how to get them all trained and I'll be the first to admit, uh, both hands in the air. Not every dog can be a field trial dog. Not every dog uh, is going to run the way someone wants uh, in the prairies. Not every dog is going to be a grouse dog, you know, which is, you know, our cup of tea back here in New England. But my personal experience, unless I have a dog that literally, after endless exposure, has no desire to point a bird, and I've had three or four of those in my career, every single dog leaves here as a suitable hunting dog. And when I say suitable hunting dog, I'm talking controllably staunch and broke. Because unlike a lot of parts in the country, a lot of areas in the country and other professionals, being steady to wing and shot isn't a big deal. Here in the Northeast, sometimes we literally, like I've put my dogs down in woodcock covers that weren't much bigger than a tennis court and they bordered a dirt road okay public dirt road so it's really important back here that you have really really good control of your dogs because some of our covers are so small all right wow that's Um, tiny i didn't think about that jesus virtually every dog i've ever trained bird dog um has been broke steady to wing and shot
0: now this this is something that you you kind of bring up too um Cause you don't believe in washing out dogs and, and, and all of the dogs that you have, or, you know, they, they eventually turn out to be some kind of a good hunting pick. Now we just said that, but in one of your articles, you did mention owners having sometimes being overdogged, like having too much dog. Now, how do you, how do you work around that when a guy says, you know, hey, Alec, I got this dog, he crazy as all get out, fire-breathing dragon, and I need you to train him. Is there yeah, a point of um, contention there?
1: I, I I mean, I get a lot of that. A lot of people, here. here's a pretty common thing I encounter. Uh, I train dogs for people who hunt grouse and woodcock. Well, doesn't it make sense that I should go to a kennel that specializes in... Grouse and Woodcock dogs, cover dog trials, okay, has cover dog champions, okay, that have proven that they point grouse and Woodcock, and I'm going to go there, and I'm going to get my first bird dog from this well-known kennel that has produced cover dog championships, or champions. They've never been to a cover dog trial. They think cover dogs are going to be 40 yards away going back and forth like a windshield wiper. Those cover dogs, <laughs> they know how to run through the woods. Right. So they, the, the people unwittingly get those dogs. Um, sometimes I find it a little discouraging that the kennels will sell a novice grouse hunter who's looking for his first pointing dog, this fire-breathing cover dog puppy, and send him on his way. I think I'm a little discouraged by that. Um, and they show up here with them. So this is going to sound crazy to a lot of people, especially those people that run field trials and want big running birds. If you show up here and say, I want a grouse dog, or you showed up here and said, I want a horseback shooting dog, I'm essentially going to train it the same way. I'm going to encourage more run in the truck dog and control a casual hunting dog. But essentially, the program are going to be the same, okay? It's just massaged a little bit for the the owner and the dog. So jumping back to how I train dogs on a check cord, turn, recall, and woe, Overlay the electric collar so the dog understands it contextually. I ask the dog to turn. I pull it on the check cord. I give the bump to the collar at an incredibly low level. I don't even care if the dog can feel it. I'd rather start at a level the dog can't feel and sneak up in levels, intensity, being careful, than start at a level that it looks like the dog can take, but ultimately it's probably bothering the dog um, and the dog's probably going to have some cumulative stress issues over time. Overlay the collar contextually on turning, recall, and the woe command, transition the dog off the check court, so now I have control off leash of turning, recall, and woe. Generalize those three things, show them different places, adding distractions, going through the whole lineup, step-by-step step adding distractions rather than huge steps at a time, as in, well, I trained my bird dog to woe on a place board. And now I'm going to put it on birds and show what it has to woe there, too. In my opinion, that's that's kind of too big a jump. I like to have some intermediate steps, uh, actually several intermediate steps before um, I ask for control around birds. And there was a a litter mate to my personal dog uh, who's gone now. She was out of Calico Trilogy and a guardrail bitch.
0: That was going to be my, I really wanted you to kind of get into that dog. Um, Would you say Um, that dog was a model of of this methodology? All right, guys, just real quick. I want to keep in mind Onyx Hunt. Go check him out. I know the season is coming or it's already closed, really. But now's the time to start scouting, getting your waypoints in, figuring out where you want to go. Um, And just checking out new spots, man. You know, next year is a wonderful time. And I know we all thinking about the new season, but you can't think about the new season without using my promo code GDN20 for 20% off your OnX subscription checkout. And after you do that, you need to go to Chewy.com and then you need to order a bag of the Eukanuba Premium Performance thirty twenty blend formula. That is what we've used. We've used it all the time. I don't change anything else. I trust it. I love it. My dogs love it. Um, and yukanuba has been, they, they, they fam. They've been, they've had our back for years now at this point. Um, and I'm proud to say that. So check out Yukonuba premium performance dog food. And when you do that you got to dip it in Biomatrix. You got to put two squirts of that good old Biomatrix supplement into their food just to kind of go ahead and add on to it. Um, You know, go ahead and check them out and and, and let me know what you think. I'm in love with the supplement, if y'all couldn't tell. So check Biomatrix supplement out um, today. You can go to Biomatrix, B-I-O-M-A, T R I X hyphen supplements.com to check them out and get your dog thriving or if you want to go get your horse thriving too, go get them, you know, get them in the biomatrix as well. Um, and then my other wonderful sponsor, AYA Fine Guns. So now that we've got dogs, we figure out where we want to go hunt, dogs are ready, they loaded up, they full, you know, air them out, you still got to get the gun ready. But there's only one gun you need to be shooting, and that is an AYA number 453, okay? That is what I'm shooting. Love it to death. Wouldn't shoot with anything else. I'm shooting a 410, and that joker there is a tack driver, but it's also a work of art. It is beautiful. It is not only my favorite gun, of course. Um, It is an heirloom piece. And what I like about them is AYA's are incredibly affordable for what would be considered a higher end Spanish gun. So check out AYA now. Go ahead and get you a custom made, custom fitted, all of that kind of stuff shotgun from a wonderful original Spanish manufacturer um, for just lovely prices. Lovely, lovely, lovely prices. Go check them out now. Um, and hit the inquiry button, man, let, let the AYA folks know you came from the gun dog notebook podcast and, and, and let them know you want to get yourself a gun. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I gotta say the last thing that you need, the dogs are fed. You got your gun, you got everything else in the world that you need. You know where you're going. You got a little extra juice on the side. But you got, I never actually specified what dog you need to get. You need to go shopping at Trinity Breton's um, and check out their new, new wonderful puppy, Rhea. She's beautiful. I I I cannot say that she is not a nice looking dog. Um check them out. Check out Champion Moose. He's a twenty nineteen elevage champion um over in France. There's a lot to work from coming out of these French Brittany lines. And I'm glad to have Josh and Jeff Ryder on the Gun Dog Notebook sponsor team. So thank y'all again. And now we are getting back to the podcast. You got everything you need. Let's 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 get to rocking and rolling.
1: I got to say all my dogs are. I mean, I don't want to sound pompous or arrogant because I struggle with dogs all the time. But I'm struggling because I'm trying to do my best for every dog, not say, this dog has too much for you. We aren't going to train it. This dog doesn't have enough. So let's send him home. Right? How can I be a better trainer? How can I get this dog trained? That's that's what I encounter here. if, If I call up a client and say, Uh, your dog just doesn't have enough horsepower. I don't think, I don't think uh, I'm, I'm forthright with clients. If I have a client that hunts 70 days a year all over America, and he has a dog that has no interest in hunting, I'm going to tell him that, but I'm going to work to get all dogs through the program successfully. So my, great friend down in South Carolina called me up number uh, many years ago because uh, this dog's been gone for a few years now. So it's probably 14, 15 years ago, she called me up and says, are you interested in a guardrail puppy? <laughs> and, you know, uh, I just about started screaming through the phone. Of course mm-hmm. I am. Of course I am. So she arrived from South Carolina Um. She put two puppies down on the ground out of her suburban. They were 12 weeks old. One was a little uh, black and white bitch and the other was a little liver and white bitch. And she put them on the ground and the little black and white bitch just didn't look at anybody. She just turned and ran off down the field as fast as she could. And my friend looked at, that, she looked at the brown and uh, the liver one, she looked at the black and white one, she looked at the liver one, she pointed at the black and white one and said, that was yours. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you can have the one that ran. You got it.
1: So they both went through the exact same program because the liver and white dog was supposed to be a personal honey dog. It wasn't supposed to be a trial dog. Mm-hmm. It went through the program at a much younger age than people think you should ever train a dog. Um, but because my program is fair and balanced and not really heavy handed, uh, I'm very successful and have a reputation for training dogs at a very young age. And so this dog went back home and it was staunch and broke and she hunted it and she wanted to have some, you know, some more ongoing training. It was still a, you know, a young green dog. how, How old
0: are you saying this dog is?
1: Well, uh, people are going to stand up and start throwing things at their uh, at their podcast when they hear this, but I'm pretty sure I started those dogs because they're incredibly precocious at about five months. <laughs> and I think I think Zoom and Eva were both uh, controllably staunch and broke, and you could shoot pen raised birds over them uh, when they were maybe eight months old. Okay, and they are the youngest dogs I've ever trained, with the exception of a litter mate from a repeat breeding, which is the youngest dog I've literally ever trained. And I don't train dogs by a calendar. You know, oh, you can't do this till they're this age or that till they're that age. It's irrelevant. Dogs all mature differently. And you just put them through an appropriate, the appropriate, the program through the appropriate way for the dog. I, I basically start my programs based on independence of the dog, not the calendar. So, uh, Eva goes back to her owner, and she wanted, you know, some continued training to, to keep her solid. So she called up uh, Mike Tracy, and that's probably a name a lot of people mm-hmm. know. Very, very successful Absolutely. uh dog. So she put the dog with Mike, and Mike called up and said, uh, "Hey, you know, this is this pretty nice little dog you got going here. Mind if I run her in some trials?" So. This dog had been through the exact same program as all my other dogs. Um, all the dogs I continue to train today and further refine. She goes to Mike. Mike runs her in a trial. Her, this is, this is Eva. Her paper name is Keys Shooting Star, and I believe she won seven championships for Mike. Wow. So anybody that says, if you train them that young, you're going to ruin them. They're never going to be field trial dogs. Well, not necessarily. It's it's not the age. It's how you train them. She right. went on obviously to be a very very successful successful dog. Um, they were dying to retire her. They loved her. They couldn't wait to have her home. But she just kept winning. She was on Mike's uh, Mike's uh, trucks, um, and I believe she had two legs on the Mid Atlantic Trophy and. Mike opened the dog box one morning and she had passed away. What? Um, so those Calico trilogy dogs, they just, they were very short lived dogs. They didn't, they, a lot of them died at pretty young ages. And um, that dog literally died on the road winning championships. Wow. Her that's sister, a... Who I own lived a number of years longer was, in, in October, I think she was 11 a few years ago, 11 or 12, she was uh, given two weeks to two months to live. She had a huge mass growing in her abdomen. It was pushing her GI tract up against um, her spine. She couldn't eat. She couldn't tolerate food. I hand-fed that dog anything she would eat. Mm-hmm. And she made it another 10 months. And the day before I put her down, she found and pointed five chucker i put out for and shot over her and had to carry her back to the house wow. the ne- just in the front field of our place here in vermont the next morning i opened the door and she walked and staggered about 100 yards down the field and i'm like sorry you know i got to do it for you sweetheart it's over But I honestly never trained any dog or seen any dog with a heart that that that, that dog did in her sister to the point of they literally just ran until they couldn't anymore. And I know there are other dogs out there, and I'm sure other people have very similar stories with with dogs. But just incredible, just incredible run, um, uh, incredible go.
0: So. Well, and that, I mean that, and that also speaks to the relationship, you know, that you do have with your dogs. I mean, that dog wanted to keep working for you. Um, she wanted to work for herself. I don't know. if She was
1: working for me. She
0: wanted to go, <laughs> but she was going to get out there and get birds.
1: And the the cool thing was, she was an awesome grouse and woodcock dog. Uh-huh. You know, um, she could have probably done well in cover dog trials. Like I said, I ran trials uh, many years ago. They just don't suit my personal temperament, you know? Yeah. Give me a fair you,
0: you, you mentioned something about that to me earlier. Um, you know, you train dogs for trials, but you don't necessarily want to get into the politics of it.
1: I, I refer to it as social dynamics. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, I don't, I, I like the training. I like the sport. But the social dynamics of dealing with the. The you know the people and the judging and uh, you know all that end of it. Uh, I'm pretty simplistic, straightforward, idealistic guy. Yep. And I was so naive when I got into retriever field trials. I thought it was about the dogs. <laughs> I didn't know it was about people's egos. And I'm a great because I had got a great dog, and I'm pissed off and going to go beat up my dog on Monday because I had a bad day on Saturday. I thought it was about dogs. I didn't know it was about people. So it just, like I said, give me a finish line, give me a clay target to break, give me a bullseye to hit, give me a stopwatch. Um, 63 years old. I just bought a new motocross bike. Okay. I still ride and race motocross. Um, I have wide, uh, background in a, in a lot of unusual sports coming from small town in Vermont. We didn't, I didn't get the team gene, okay, yeah. uh, not interested in team sports. I grew up hunting and fishing and rock climbing and whitewater kayaking and riding dirt bikes. Um, I've done a bunch of skydiving. I have I've, uh, used to be involved in uh, fencing with the long, sharp, pointy sticks. Um, and just a wide variety of unusual interests compared with a lot of
0: people in my field. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think that that. Has it always been like that for you? You know, just zero interest in wanting to do any of that stuff? I mean, long term, like when did it when when were you over it?
1: Uh, Are we talking about my different sports interest or?
0: dogs or where we have. Whoa, right I'm now. sorry. <laughs> I guess we did That's go up right. on a, a tangent. Um yeah. With dogs, like when were you, when were, was it just like you didn't want nothing else to do with trials or anything like that?
1: I, I was running retriever field trials and I was training pointing dogs. And, um, um, I wasn't like an A-list trainer. I was, a, I think, I was a competent young pro. For people that know retriever field trials, I qualified a bunch of dogs all age. I had four dogs running the open on my truck. I had just uh, received a it's called a jam judges award of merit. That meant I hadn't placed one through four, but the judges thought my performance was good enough that I needed some recognition. So you get a green ribbon called a jam. I had just jammed an open with a three-year-old dog. I was. You know, I didn't run away from the sport with my tail between my legs because I couldn't compete. I just decided that I, I just didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy the uh, the social dynamics of the sport. I like training dogs and it, it hurt my business because I had established some uh, field trial clients and it hurt my business for a while. But uh, I just I have a hard time doing things that I don't enjoy. Yeah. That's why I train dogs. I enjoy doing it. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I stopped. And like I said, I just run some, uh, some walking trials with my own dogs, uh, U.S. Complete when I was, you know, when I was down south for the winter, uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, different places. I used to go up to Hoffman Field Trial Grounds over 20 years ago and rent horses for Mr. Mr. Burgess and go mm-hmm. ride with the gallery up there you know, uh, over 20 years, probably 25 years ago, I used to do that. Yeah. Um, but tri- trials don't suit my temperament. I encourage people. I encourage if I have a client that says, Hey, I'm interested in that field trial thing. I'm like, go have a blast. You right. might, you may become obsessed and passionate about it and I'm all for it. And I would help it help
0: you with it. It just doesn't suit my temperament. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, and I, I think, You know, just going into that, when we first spoke, I want to kind of, I want to talk about somebody that I think might share your thought on training dogs, but was also very much so in the field trials. And and that's Delmar Smith. Now, did you tell me you met him?
1: (laughs) Um, No more than a casual uh, handshake at the SHOT show. In Atlanta, many, many, many okay. years
0: ago. Okay, because okay. I, I and I remember awesome. you said something about Atlanta too. Okay, because he did come here to Atlanta. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah. No. Um, I like I said, I came from the retriever world, and in the retriever world, when my Labrador is running twenty plus miles an hour, three hundred plus yards away, and I blow a single whistle blast, I expect that dog to stop, turn face me sit and wait a directional signal uh arm signal which is sophisticated enough that if i raise my right arm straight up that dog should turn to his left and go straight back if i raise my left arm that dog should turn to his right and go straight back Mm -hmm. okay he should also cast in the different directions around the clock face uh angle back over angle in and straight over I go to a bird dog field trial and (laughs) I see people screaming bloody murder Mm -hmm. to get their dog to bend in their direction. And then at time they can't even catch their dog. And I'm kind of like, well, this is different. (laughs) You know, I, I wonder why those dogs don't turn and come when they're called. All right. So I just approach bird dog training with kind of a, through a different lens. Okay. Not that I was a control freak, but I'm like, You know, if I ask my dog to turn, I kind of expect it to change direction. Mm -hmm. If I recall it, I kind of expect it to come when it's called. All right. There's a little bit. uh, I've judged a couple trials. Uh, There's a little bit uh, the the thought that when you cut your dog loose in a field trial. It's supposed to basically look like a wild animal that hasn't been touched by human hands but is miraculously going to stay in contact with the handler and handle birds impeccably. Mm -hmm. We don't want to see dogs uh, exhibiting a lot of trained skills. Um, uh, You know, you want that big forward race. You want that great stylish lick and you want impeccable bird handling, but you don't want to have it look like the dog was trained. We're in the retriever sports that's what you're looking at, especially in blind retrieves. You're looking at a high degree of high degree of control. So when I got into the bird dog world, I wanted that, that style, but I, you know, I also wanted control. And quite honestly, the bulk of my business, I trained hunting house pets. Okay. Somebody has a pointer, someone has a setter, someone has a Brittany or a wire hair or you name the breed, it's their house dog, it sleeps on the bed maybe, it rides in the front of their truck, and they want to go hunt with it in the fall. And some of my clients are very serious. They hunt all over the United States, they go to the Canadian prairies, uh, they hunt grouse. Uh, they go down south for, for quail, they go out to uh, Texas, Oklahoma, Arizona for quail. Very, very serious clients. And then I have clients that hunt three or four days a year. Right. And that's really who I train dogs for, you know, and if you look at my very first article in Upland Albinac, full disclosure, that's what I said. I train, I train dogs for, you know, people that have dogs and want to go hunt with their dogs. If you want to run trials, I bet it will work too. Now, so, go ahead. the Delmar thing, I'll just touch back. I read his book with Bill Tarrant, mm-hmm. you know, I probably in our basement somewhere are Delmar's videos. You know what Delmar was doing? He was check cording his dogs accurately. He was overlaying electric collars with his check cord so the dogs understood it contextually. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw that and I went, well, that, that really makes sense. You know, and there's some stuff in his books that I didn't do. I never... Threw a, a through a wave down the check cord to bump the dog under the chin with a, the the bowling knot on the end of the check cord. I yeah. didn't do that. I remember, but I, overlaid, I
0: told like, you that was something I did. Yeah, yeah.
1: I overlaid the collar in a very similar way. Yeah. I, as I said, there's not much that I haven't tried. I used to carry dog. You know, your dog moves on point. You walk over and you pick it up and you carry it back. Right. Mm-hmm. Put it down. So it learns. Well, dogs have about a nine or ten second short-term memory so if you don't get to that dog how is that dog supposed to remember why you're moving it and i carried dogs all over vermont for a bunch of years until i went i'm not sure this is really the best way to do it because what i saw was that carefully lift your dog up and move him back and lightly put him on the ground and style him up and whisper sweet nothings in his ear, frequently turns into picking the dog up, screaming at him, hauling him back, dropping him on the ground, and threatening him with his life if he ever moves again. And people go, oh, well, see, moving the dog back works. No, scaring the death out of your dog works. Mm -hmm. It's not moving them back that's working. My apologies to people who have been successful teaching their dog manners by carefully moving them back. But I have a pretty deep uh, uh, memory of a lot of people who were, let's say, a little more uh, rambunctious than whispering sweet nothings in their dog's ear when they were carrying them back. So you know i just just evolved things it just seems they seem to me be a better way to do it right. i used to get up and walk across the room and touch the tv and turn the knobs to turn it on and off and change the channel mm-hmm. i don't do it that way anymore anymore it works but there's a better way to do it
0: right right well and i i think that's the the overarching theme is is continue looking for a newer better way you know <laughs> Um, every dog is different. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting watch, right? Like everybody's about to get a bunch of new puppies and everybody's going to want those new puppies to perform in the way that we all dream and envision. But, you know, it's, it's, it's now that we need to be thinking about, okay, like what, what are we doing to tailor whatever it is that we're trying to teach the dog to the dog's way of learning?
1: You know, and you need to be sort of a little open-minded and a little intellectually curious about the training process. Um, Like, how, how long a search would it take online right this second to find the information that says if you use an electric collar around birds, it will create problems. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the preponderance of information that you're going to find. Never use an electric collar. No, where, where do
0: you think that, where does that come from, though? Like, where does that thought methodology come from? Because I, I, shoot, I, I admit, I was one of the proponents that, that did think that. So where does that come from?
1: Why would it, why would it, well, you know, you just got to answer that question yourself. Why would a dog, Start blinking birds, for example, if you use an electric collar around birds. Well, maybe the dog thought that what happened was unpleasant or not contextual and it didn't understand what was happening, or it was too big of a jump. We taught it, whoa, and we gave it a couple bumps with a collar in the backyard, and everything went well. So now I'm going to put it on birds and try and do the same thing. The dog's in a higher state of drive because of the excitement of the birds. And I'm going to ramp up the collar and I'm going to teach him now that that's how you have to behave. Okay. Um, it's 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 lack of, as I was alluding to earlier with my progression, my dogs come off the check court. Okay. Now they're on the collar. They know to... Um, turn to come and to woe I start adding distractions to those I ask them to turn when they're chasing a songbird I ask them to turn when they're distracted or they put their head down or they they basically want to go someplace else okay and that's I'll use that little distraction to say hey no you got to turn now or you have to come now they only know woe kind of close by um, around no distractions but now I'm going to ask them to woe And I'm going to move. They go to move because I'm moving. And I go, whoa, using the inflection in my voice as cautionary. I don't snap out, whoa, like I'm yelling no, because that freaks out a lot of dogs. I go, whoa. And I enforce the whoa command. I get so I can walk a circle around them. If they move, I say, whoa, I'm only doing it a little bit at a time. And then I cut them loose. They go for a run. I ask him to turn as I need. If you have a dog that is punching holes in the horizon for a, a, a grouse hunter, I'm going to turn and recall that dog a lot more. If I have a dog that's kind of timid and doesn't have a lot of run in him, I'm hardly going to turn him or recall him at all. You got to balance it out, okay? I'm going to encourage that dog to go, and I'm going to try and put more control on the hard-going dog for the hunter that really doesn't want that or isn't ready for that. So. I ask the dog to woe, and I move 10 feet away. It goes to take a step. I enforce the woe command. With a bump on the collar, contextually, the dog understands it. They don't have a problem with it. I cut them loose. We go 100 yards, 200 yards. I ask them to woe. I see if I can get a little further around the semicircle. Maybe it takes two or three training sessions before I can walk a full circle. And they've gotten a lot of enforcements on the woe command and running, turning, recalling, in between. So now I can move, I can walk a circle around him 20 feet away. I start kicking around in the grass, making a flushing effort. Some dogs are oblivious and some dogs go through the roof when you make that flushing effort. But it's just a little gradual step up. So my flushing efforts get more dramatic and whatnot over a number of days, a lot of training sessions. Then the dogs get, so I can tell them to whoa, and they stop. Uh, they watch me make a flushing effort. No big deal. No, well, I've seen that lots before. I initially asked them to stop when they are close and slow and moving, then close and fast and moving, then further away and slow, and then further away and fast. So I can say, whoa. And if my dogs hear me say, whoa, I expect them to stop at any distance. Okay. So now they're running, I stop them, I make my flushing effort, and I throw a hat in the air or I throw a glove in the air. For a lot of dogs, especially that have seen birds go and been allowed to chase these youngsters or dogs with a lot of retrieve in them, boy, that hat's a a big trigger. Whoa, 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 you got to whoa. I'm throwing hats. You got to stand there for that. And I get them to the point where I can walk around and throw hats and gloves and they're like, all right, I'm good with that. I stay here on whoa. Okay. After my dogs are to that point, I go down the field with a bag of homing pigeons. I tell them to whoa. I make a flushing effort. I maybe even throw a hat in the air. And then, generally, about 25 yards away from the dog, behind my back, I just let go of a homing pigeon. Okay. No fanfare, no blank shot, no yelling, just quietly let it go. Okay. 90% of my dogs just stand there or take a step or two. If they take a step or two, I just say, Whoa, it's it's a distraction, but it's just a step up from the hat toss. I didn't come from the backyard woe post to a field and ask for it. There was a lot of increasingly distracting steps in between. I'll admit over the years I've had a couple of huge breaks where the dog chased that chased that bird, like, like Secretary did the Belmont years ago. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And it's just like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. And you know, a couple of times I'm like, well, I'm glad to Homer's circle because when that dog comes back by me, 20 yards away, I'll probably be more likely to get him to Whoa. When I eventually get him to a stop. Right. So now I got dogs that over, a week or so of that will stand there as I make a flushing pigeon and release a homing pigeon behind my back. My next step stops the flush. They're coming around a bush. They're coming around a hedgerow, something like that. I just throw a pigeon right in their face, and I ask them to whoa, and enforce with a remote collar contextually. They don't have a problem with it. They come to a stop. Most dogs learn in two or three days that if this bird comes up in my face, I come to a stop. The advantage of that is a lot of these demons know that if I'm standing here and birds fly, I don't chase them. But if I'm running and a bird flies, I get to keep chasing it. You know, a bird flushes wild. They run over a, a bird or a cubby from the upwind side. And I'm running and a bird fly. I can chase it. Great advantage for dogs to know, bird in the air, I come to a stop. No big deal. My next step, I put birds out in electronic releases. I tell the dog to woe when he's not does not have the bird on his nose. So the, bird, the dog's at the top of the triangle. I'm at the right-hand side of the triangle at the base. And the release is at the left-hand side of triangle at the base. And we're all maybe 30 yards apart. And I pop the bird. It's a different dynamic. The bird's not coming for me. It's coming off the ground. Some dogs find that more challenging, more exciting, more difficult they realize now that I do that a bunch of times and they realize that birds come off the ground, not from behind Alex's back. It is just then child's play. If you've gone through that successive approximation to put a bird out in a release. Okay. I always let my dogs encounter the scent cone perpendicular to the scent. I don't come up, let them come up from downwind place here in Vermont the open fields where I do a lot of my bird training are mowed into cover strips that run east west because the prevailing wind here in the summer is north south so I have a, a release in a hedgerow the dogs are a cover strip. the dogs running down one of the mow strips now they hit that sink cone okay perpendicular and here's where they that the lover hate mail is really going to come flying mm-hmm. in okay if they if they go through that scent cone and they don't indicate, no big deal. I just take them on a hundred yard loop and we come back and I maybe try to get them one most grip closer so they encounter the bird a little closer, okay? Now they hit that, go into that scent cone and they one of a few things is going to happen. They're going to turn into scent cone and rush towards the release. If they do that, I'm going to say, whoa, bring them to a stop, okay? If I need to bump them with a collar, I'll bump them with a collar. But at this point in their training, they've probably had contextual enforcement of the whoa command, I don't know, 60, 70, 100 times, depending Mm -hmm. on the dog. And it's all at levels that have been so gradual, there haven't been any big, quote-unquote, corrections. So... If you go to either the Snowbound Kennels Facebook page, Mm -hmm. um, you can see dogs that I've trained. I don't even have a website because everything's referral and I'm so busy. I don't, (laughs) the last thing I need is a website or if people go to the Snowbound Kennels video Mm -hmm. page on Facebook, the first video on that page is only five videos. I think the first video there's, I think six six pointing dogs running. Okay, five or six pointing dogs running. They're all about seventy yards away. A variety of different breeds. Uh, Nobody has a collar on that I can remember. They're just out for a run. I ask them to whoa. They all come to a stop, and they all style up. Okay, dogs have a belief system just like people. Dogs believe. I need to stop because he said, whoa, because if I don't, something bad is going to happen to me. Okay. Dogs dogs can have a belief system. I need to come to a stop because he said, whoa, and something great is going to happen. Okay. And if you look at that video, I think it's pretty good evidence that when I say, whoa, my dogs think something good is going to happen because they all style up. A couple of videos below, there's five dogs doing the same thing, and a big diesel in the middle of the frame looks miserable on the Whoa command. He had just arrived from a different trainer. That dog stopped on Whoa because he thought if he didn't, he was going to get his butt kicked. And my dogs all style up because they think Whoa means something great is going to happen. Right. So that dog enters that scent cone. He turns towards the release. I tell him to woe. The thought that only a dog can decide when to point, I think, is a little bit of a uh, of a fallacy. I think there's a lot of dogs. I mean, we've all seen those dogs that just have so much point. Mm-hmm. You know, they run by your pillow in the front yard and they're going to lock up. they got right. so much point. A, a lot of dogs don't. Some dogs don't have as good a nose. Some dogs just don't have that, as much point in them. And the main problem people have with pointing dogs is they mishandle birds and they generally mishandle birds by crowding them. So I'm a firm with
0: that. I I was going to say, you know, with all of that, you know, you actually mentioned something that was really dope as far as mishandling birds. um, And that was, you know, spraying those birds off too. I just kind of wanted to touch on that (laughs) before we went any further.
1: Yeah, so um, spraying birds off. Um, everybody has seen that trained a bunch of dogs. Uh, some dogs have a lot greater intensity on wild birds than they do pen-raised birds. Mm-hmm. To the point where some dogs won't even point them. Okay, um, I've seen that. And many years ago, I was getting pheasants out of uh, a preserve operation. And they were their brood hens, and they had been kept indoors in a fairly dusty environment all winter. And they, once they collected eggs, they were selling me the brood hens to use. I'd been using them for a couple weeks, and man, I was happy if one flew forty yards. I mean, they just they just weren't good flying birds at all. But it was spring; I had to use them, no choice. Mm-hmm. So. I picked up a crate of birds one day, and it was a solid bottom crate, and the birds were just covered in filth, you know, their own filth. It was all over their feet and their tails. They're just disgusting. And it was a warm, warm spring day, you know, 65, 70 degrees, and I got out the hose, and I put it on mist, and I started spraying the visible filth off the crate and the birds' tails and feet and stuff. And I couldn't believe the water that was running off those birds was just filthy. It was just like brown water coming off, coming off the birds. So I just kept spraying and spraying and spraying. And, you know, they're kind of ruffling their feathers and stuff like that a little bit when I'm doing it. And and I stopped when the water was clean. Well, I left the crate in the sun for the birds to dry. A couple hours later, I go out and open the crate, grab a pheasant. It slips out of my hand and flies over a tree line about 200 yards away. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this ain't my first rodeo. I don't usually let go of $15 pheasants. And right. why the heck did that bird fly so far away? So didn't give it a whole lot of thought. Got the next bird out more carefully. And um, I think I was uh, training a flushing dog. And I put that bird in a relief. Okay. Flushing dog comes down. I pop the bird, and that thing literally flew over a line of trees. Actually, no, it was a pointing dog. The dog comes down, slams into point with what I would call wild bird intensity. Mm -hmm. I'm like, wow, what? Look at that. I mean, he is like, you would think there was a, a grouse five feet away. Pop the bird. It flew quarter mile over trees, and I'm like, okay, Alec, put on your thinking cap what's going on there, okay? Well, Eureka. Our pen-raised birds, whether they're in a Johnny house, a pigeon loft, or pheasant, maybe the exception would be chuckers raised on a hardware clock floor that's raised off the ground. Mm-hmm. But all those other birds, they live in a level of their own droppings that no wild bird does. Okay. Obviously, a cubby of quail and some different birds that are gallinaceous will leave droppings where they've been or been at rest. Okay. But they don't live in that filth the way our pen raised birds do. And that's even pheasants in a pretty big flight pen that's, uh, that's grass. They're still on, you know, a lot of their own droppings. And they don't smell like birds, they smell like little feathered manure bombs. So when I washed them, I washed away all that dust and, and filth. It, I'm sure it let the little barbs on their feathers all line up and be clean. I'm sure the birds preened and put some oil into their feathers. That's why they were slippery and one got away. And when the dog pointed it, it smelled like a bird, not mm-hmm. like a pillow that's been in a manure pile. Right. And the intensity went way, way up. So that's a really, really good little tip for people that have a dog that doesn't have intensity on pen raised birds, maybe even to the point of it won't play the game, unless it won't play the game because it thinks it's going to get in trouble because it's gotten in trouble before on a bird that smells like manure. But I don't seem to get in trouble on birds that don't smell like manure. Mm -hmm. So when I stop that dog that wants to approach the release on the whoa command, it's contextual. The dog understands it. It's uh, gradual, successive approximation. There's no loss of style. Frequently, they style up because I said, whoa. Now I pop the bird, and I can keep that dog controllably staunch using whoa. I can keep that dog steady to wing and shot on the first bird it's had in since it started formal training. It may have had birds when it was younger, but when they come in, I put them on the checkboard. It takes a rare case for me to put dogs on birds until I get them to that point of control. So I like to get brakes and steering on and then introduce them to birds formally. Now, a dog l- sent l- sent l- cone,
0: l- let me ahead. ask you this, have you ever seen a dog, because you get them started so early, have you ever seen a dog slide backwards, like gets a little bit older, and because you you might have broke them so early or something like that, and they seemed ready at the time, Did, have you ever seen any slide backwards?
1: So I've seen a lot of, everyone's heard of the terrible twos, you know, my, my dog Zoom Zoom, that Calico Trilogy dog, um, she was staunch and broke and we were shooting wild birds over her in the fall. I went down south for the winter and I came back next spring and that was that. dog was busting and chasing birds like crazy. Yeah. She went through the terrible twos at a very, very young age as she matured and got much more independent and stronger mentally and stronger physically. But because she had great brakes and steering, she had that great foundation, it was really easy to rein her in without using inordinate or non-contextual enforcement of commands so it was really easy to get control of her in general and i think one of the hardest problems people have uh there's a few big hurdles in dog training one is uh not making emotionally based training decisions okay um very very difficult for people not to get mad and train out of anger.
0: Okay. Do you you think we're Um, too emotional with our dogs?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm fine about being happy, but you know what used to make my skin crawl when someone blew out of a field trial and they turned to the gallery in their embarrassment and said, huh, we're going to fix that on Monday. You know, like, like your dog didn't do well. It didn't do well because maybe it had a bad, bad day or wasn't prepared. You're embarrassed, but you're manifesting that as anger. Okay, which men kind of do when they're embarrassed in public. It's usually manifested as anger, and you're going to tear the dog up Monday because you're embarrassed. Okay, Uh, you go out there, people, and this goes to what we're talking about. Training isn't some beautiful bell curve where every day the dog gets better and better. I mean, it's the stock market. It's ups and downs, and it's backwards, and it's plateaus, and. Uh, it bottoms out for a while. Then it skyrockets and you're riding high and then there's a big setback. And that that's difficult for a lot of people. They want to see that linear progress where the dog's getting better and better every day and you just have to approach it. I think it's best to approach it non-emotionally and I think that's very difficult for a lot of people because we're emotional creatures and they're emotionally invested. And if you're in a training group or you're trying to get ready for a trial or you're out with your buddies and your dogs, like just doing terrible. It is difficult to to not get emotional in your decisions. Uh, that's, that's one of the most difficult things is not making emotionally based training decisions.
0: Okay. Yep. I mean, but what do you think it is that that's kind of promoting that emotionally based training thing—is it—is it just a, uh, I guess, as people have transitioned dogs to being be, becoming more house pets or something like that?
1: No, I think the emotional the emotional part of training decision is natural. It's very human. I find that a lot of it's frustration based, and frustration really generally comes from not knowing what to do if you encounter a problem or getting frustrated with the time frame it's taking to overcome what you perceive as a problem, okay? If I know what to do and I know how long it's going to (laughs) take, why would I be frustrated, okay? Why would I act emotionally? Why would I um, get after my dog or use pressure that's not appropriate or something? Um, if, If I know what I need to do, in the context of fair, humane, and compassionate training. And I, I know how long it's going to take, okay? If I don't know what to do, I'm going to get frustrated. And if I get frustrated, I'm already emotional. And if it's not happening as fast as I want it to, because hunting season's coming, field trial season's coming, dark is coming, um, my I got I got something else to do. If it's not happening fast enough, you're going to get frustrated. No. When you're frustrated, you're going to make emotional
0: training decisions. So okay, so something to think about. Do you think guys from the past considering the dogs, right? Like and I'm talking when you would have first been coming in, there would have been much I guess what people would have considered tougher, grittier dogs, right? Do you think mm-hmm. people were still doing making emotionally based training decisions, or was it just that's what they had to do because of the type of the dogs that they had?
1: Um, I'm sure, I would I would speculate, people have all, always made emotionally based training decisions, and I think um, the training has evolved. When I first learned my electric collar overlay from skilled professionals who had learned from other skilled professionals, I was told that every time I pressed a button, the dog should be vocal. Okay. It was a retriever, but every time I said sit, every time I said heal, every time I said come, I was supposed to use an intensity that got me a little squeak out of the dog. Now I'm not talking bloody murder, but a little, you know, you know, you'll get a static electricity shock off your car, pulling the laundry apart or something like that. And, you know, you get that little surprise, but that was, In those days, they thought that if we use a low intensity and gradually come up, the dog will be desensitized to that gradual increase, and then we're doomed. So they they used – it was just – that's how we did it in the day. It was a harder – it was a higher level of intensity because that's what we knew. I learned that 30 years ago, and I questioned it 30 years ago, And I learned to train retrievers on these huge private properties near my hometown where if the dog squeaked a little, no big deal. There wasn't anyone around for, you know, three quarters of a mile or more. Then my wife and I bought our first house and uh, we had 14 acres, but we still had neighbors a couple hundred yards away. And I'm like, man, I can't train dogs the way I learned. I can't have these dogs, you know vocalizing all day and i didn't think it was right in the first place so i started experimenting with lower levels different intensities um maybe continuous versus momentary or momentary versus continuous and started experimenting and quickly saw that i could get them trained just fine they weren't getting desensitized to intensity and you didn't need those higher levels which i thought you didn't need anyway
0: now, what different what differentiates what you're doing from what people would classify as positive training, positive reinforcement training?
1: Well, um, you know, there's three hours of unpacking. Um, positive <laughs> positive reinforcement. There's, there's a, a real negative connotations in the sporting dog training. When I say sporting dogs, I'm talking retrievers, bird dogs, flushing dogs. Real negative connotations with treat training. I'm not going to bribe my dog. No one throws bottles of champagne in the window when I go the speed limit. I have to do certain things because. I just have to do certain things because. And I won't use that re- treat training. Okay. I did that for 18 years, 18 years of my professional career. I disparaged any reward training, and I used a little human thing called um, uh, confirmation bias, which is I look for information that confirmed what I already thought. And I had an endless supply of dogs that came into my kennel that people had trained with treats. They didn't come, they didn't heal, they didn't sit, they didn't woe, they were always bumping my hands looking for food it confirmed that reward based or treat training was stupid, right? Right. So about 12 years ago and I've always kind of thought outside the box. I've been very comfortable outside the box. I look at things from a different perspective than just this is tradition and this is how we have to do it. Uh, and a client knows knows I think like that and she said, "Hey Alec, you know, you should really look at this uh, this DVD on reward training." And I'm like, yeah, right. That's just what I need. You know, I've been a pro for 18 years. I'm not throwing cookies at my dogs. So I threw it up on the desk. And I don't know, a couple weeks later, I was on my winter training trip. I plugged it in. There's it a two hour video. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 10 minutes into that thing, I was like, oh my God, am I an idiot? Yeah. This is absolutely amazing. Okay. There is a tremendous difference between telling Muffy to sit in the kitchen and tossing her a biscuit and thinking you're training a dog versus reward-based marker training, which is operant conditioning, which is substantially more difficult to do properly than put a dog on a leash and pull it around.
0: What Break down that operant threat, conditioning for me. What What do you mean by operant,
1: that? Operant, operant conditioning. Okay, um, classical conditioning, operant conditioning. I'm no expert. Operant conditioning, reward-based training, marker training. Marker is an audible the dog hears when it has done something correctly. There is a short delay, around a half a second, and the dog gets a food reward. OK, some people use a clicker. They call it clicker training. I can see your audience rolling their eyes. Mm-hmm. OK, I, I, um, I did clicker for a little bit early on, but I don't I generally don't use a clicker. Clickers have an advantage. Sometimes I generally use a word. And let's just say that word is yes. OK, uh, honestly, I don't do a lot of reward based training with bird dogs. I do a lot with uh, retrievers. I do a lot with flushing dogs. Um, protection dogs, and obviously the the pet dogs I train, the bird dogs, we need independence. We need those dogs thinking out there is where I want to go. I want to find birds. So it would be pretty easy with some lower drive dogs to get them more interested in hanging around with you because you seem to be a food dispenser than going out there. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're, you know, h- high drive dogs. You could, you know, you throw a T-bone steak in front of them, they're going to run right by right. and never look back. But the lower drive dogs, if you did too much reward base with them, they'll say, ah, I'm not going out there. You're the one with all the food. Mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily do much of this with pointing dogs. But an example would be, let's say you had a, a little, little uh, a puppy you were working with and uh, he's out in the yard. He's 10 weeks old, 12 weeks old, he's hanging out around you, you know, you're playing with him a little bit, and you're not far away, only a step away, he comes to a stop. The millisecond that puppy comes to a stop, you go, yes, and you deliver him a little food reward, tiny, tiny, the size of a kibble, but the value of the food matters, value is how much the dog likes it. It should be a high-value food, and we need to find the value the puppy likes. You know, like I have a Labrador that'll take my hand off for a single kibble, and I have other dogs that I've literally had to use steak to get them interested. Okay? So there's value of the food. There's a volume of the food. How much do you get? The volume should vary. Sometimes they get one kibble-sized piece. Sometimes they get three. Sometimes you're playing the lottery, you win a dollar. Sometimes you win 20. And that's the anticipation uh, along with the the, um, uh, the reward that actually can help keep you interested. So the little puppy stops. You go, yes, you reach over, you give him a kibble. And then he wanders around the yard a little bit more, and he comes to a stop. And you go, yes, and you reach over and give him a kibble, okay? Wanders around the yard. He comes to a stop. And now, he's, now that little puppy's thinking, man, every time I stop, that guy gives me food. And he starts offering the behavior, okay, of his own volition. He comes to a stop. Now, with the different breeds of dogs, uh, pets, flushing, retriever, or protection, they might sit, they might down, they might come, and we mark all those behaviors and reward. How you hold the food is important. Again, the value of the food, the volume of the food, how accurately you mark how you literally deliver the food to the dog, initially it would be on kind of a 100% pay schedule, but you also know, I'm back.
0: Okay. We, we, we just dropped out. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There we go. I was like, what in the world went on? All right. So you were talking about uh, the way that you deliver the food.
1: Yeah. So the delivery of the food is important, um, but you also have to understand the pay schedule. Initially it's on a hundred percent of behaviors, but you then transition to an irregular pay schedule. And then you overlay traditional leashes and collars and electric collars on top of that. But you can teach these behaviors, um, uh, just in a phenomenal, phenomenal way. And it creates a different dog. That said, I'll go back to reiterate. I don't do a lot of reward based training with bird dogs because I want that independence from me, not a dependence
0: on me. Right. Right. Um, are you are you one of them folks that doesn't teach? And I I don't know if I guess I might be one of them folks. But do you teach sit to bird dogs early on?
1: Uh, uh, you broke up there for a sec. What was that again, please?
0: I was saying, are you are you one of the folks that doesn't teach sit to their bird dogs early on?
1: Tell my bird dogs to sit. Uh huh. <laughs> it's really funny. I'll go into the vet with one of my bird dogs and all the techs are getting out treats and going, Sit, sit, yeah. sit. My bird dogs like look, look at them like, What the heck yeah, are you doing? That's
0: talking how mine about? are. Mine okay. are like, uh, yeah. what are we um, doing? Yeah.
1: I have done it when clients request it because uh, so many of my clients, these dogs are year-round house pets. Maybe their uh, wife, maybe their children have to take the dog for a walk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they got these cover dog trial dogs and they got to have some control. It's very common, at least in my experience, that if a dog comes to me knowing how to sit, he'll have a greater proclivity to sit when I'm trying to teach the woe command. Okay, um, I had years ago. I had one setter here. Every time I said, "Well, that dog sat," I picked that dog up five hundred times in three months, and I told the guy, "I said, look, you know that dog had such a good conditioned response to, I'm not moving. I should be sitting. I could not get this dog to understand the wo command." He goes, it, "It's totally fine by me. I could care less if he sits on the wo command. No big deal." He left. And the dog had been in training three and a half months, which is the general time frame for me to take a dog from scratch to staunch and broke on liberated birds, okay, and ready for more of that and then transition to wild birds. But a lot of my clients want their dogs home, you know, as soon as possible, so to speak. That guy stopped on the way home with his dog and shot grouse and woodcock over it. The dog never sat on woe or on point. For the rest of the dog's life. Interesting.
0: Like, I don't know. What do you you think that? What do you think it was?
1: You know, it says dogs are place oriented. Dogs look at things in different contexts. Dogs don't conceptualize, okay? Conceptualize. You can drive in Georgia, right? You can drive a car in Georgia. You can drive a car in Spain. You understand the concept of driving a car. That's a big problem for people with dogs. They train their dog in a in their bird field, their local bird field, their backyard, their buddy's backyard. The dogs learn to do it there. Oh, well, my dog's all trained now. They cut it loose, and the dog's like, Yahoo! I don't have to behave here. I do all that stuff in the yard. So that's an important part of the transition and generalizing a dog skill to show it, you need to do it in a wide variety of locations and circumstances. And people don't generalize well, and that leads to a lot of problems because my dog was so great in the backyard, and now I take him hunting and he's running amok, I better turn my collar up. Okay, this dog knows that, so I need to punish that behavior because he's willingly, willingly doing it incorrectly where the dog just hasn't contextualized the skill to understand, it needs to be done in a variety of different locations. Right. Well, and that so also
0: it, goes into you saying earlier, um, you don't like to put apprehension in a dog.
1: I, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to. I want my dogs to feel like they're they're king of the walk. They're bold. They're brave. I don't want to put a dog in a situation where he's apprehensive. Okay. You know, honestly, I've seen dogs get up on barrels, wobbly barrels tables and all that and be happy as clams. Okay. And it doesn't bother them at all. They, they're very adaptive dogs, but I've also seen a lot of those dogs up on those devices that are scared to death. Okay. Mm -hmm. And people go, well, the dog's no good. The, The dog's not no good. He just doesn't adapt to that. Um, the way some other dogs do. So, I determined for me personally I saw no advantage in using those devices, especially because dogs don't conceptualize. How many people have seen a dog that woes perfectly on a barrel and you put them on the ground and they say whoa, and they just walk away. Oh no, I I I woe on the barrel. Or I woe on the placeboard. I don't I don't know how to woe on the ground. If you spend enough time on the barrel or the placeboard, you may be more lucky in getting woe on the ground. But You get woe on a barrel a little bit. I've seen not just me training, a lot of other trainers scratching their head going, oh, he woes great on a barrel. I put him on the ground and he walks away. Well, he doesn't know to do it on the ground. Mm -hmm. I would. So now I need to use pressure to show him he has to do it on the ground. I would rather eliminate the barrel and just show everything the dog on the ground where he's confident and bold, and that's where he is going to have to use those skills. So if someone does need a dog to sit, I will teach sit and woe simultaneously to show the dog in context. This is the sit command. This is the woe command. If I ask you to woe and sit, I'm just going to kind of quietly move you forward or lift you up. I'm not going to make a big fuss over it. I'm just going to ease you forward and encourage you to do it. If I tell you to sit and you woe, I might come over and place a single finger by your tail and encourage you to sit. And just try and help them understand there's two different things here, man. I want you to do this one and I want you to do that one. Um, but generally, by and large, I don't teach bird dogs to sit. And I certainly
0: don't teach them to heal until their field training is done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, um, I, I I, definitely didn't do that with my dogs. And they're, you know, they're good now They heal. My dogs still don't sit, but. <laughs> that's also you know, not something I, I cared about but um you know I was just curious it you know as the conversation continued to go um you just kind of made me curious about that but look I am you know I'm I'm really interested in a conversation that we had about short hairs um short hairs today versus short hairs 25 years ago. What, what's your what's your opinions on that? I wanted to to really get that get into that a little bit.
1: My experience is that I, tra- I I train a lot of short hairs. I've actually had clients come here and say, "Oh, I didn't know you bred short hairs." I said, "I don't. I just train them." I mean, the kennel sometimes is three quarters full of short hairs. They're mm-hmm. a very popular dog back here in New England. um <sighs> I remember shorthairs 25 years ago as having fairly good bone, fairly good substance, okay, Uh, muscular dogs that were athletic but had a more modest level of independence. Independence to me is what makes a dog run big. You can have the craziest bird-finding dog in the world, and if it's not independent, it's going to run around like mad near you looking for birds athleticism can help a dog run bigger, but you can have the most athletic dog in the world. And if it's not independent, it's going to hang around with you. Okay. You can have a three legged dog with no hunting desire, but if that dog's independent, eventually it's going to wander away from you. So obviously bird finding, obviously athleticism, which is the confirmation of the dog has something to do with that. Um, That leads to a bigger running dog, but I believe that uh, independence is a big component. The short hairs that I sort of cut my teeth on, as I said, substance, muscular, larger dogs with appropriate hunting uh, independence for what I understand the breed to be
0: now. Art, I'm assuming they were closer to those DK lines the, the Kurtzars
1: nowadays if someone says they're coming in with their short hair I have no idea what it's going to look like I mean like minuscule little dogs that weigh 38 you know 35 pounds um, big long lanky dogs that look more like pointers without a tail and crazy, crazy independent. A guy came here a couple years ago with a six-month-old short hair. He got it out of his truck. We went out to the kennel. I was going to show him the kennel and stuff like that. I spent two hours on my four-wheeler trying to catch that six-month-old dog. Uh, At two different points, it was over a half mile. We have a – our my property, our property here in Vermont is – a little over 100 acres of field and second growth woodland at the end of a half-mile private driveway surrounded by dairy farms, Uh, either corn or hay fields or soybean fields. Mm -hmm. Two times that dog was over a half-mile away on a road with me trying to catch him for two hours on a four-wheeler at six months old. That's a darn athletic, independent little short hair. And I just see the confirmation of the short hairs, uh, the run that are in them, and the independence has really changed dramatically just in my professional lifetime. Now, there's still some fabulous dogs there, but they aren't uh, sort of more uh, what I would have expected Uh, 25 years ago.
0: Okay. Okay. That's 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 very interesting. Um, I just see so much variance in them. Um, you know, likewise, and I I pick on them a lot, but you know, I just I just kind of wonder, like, are they are they still adhering to what they set out to be? I
1: you know I I I think that breeding in America uh, there's. Unbelievably wonderful breeders producing wonderful dogs. And there are so many crazy outcrosses that should never have been bred. It just boggles my mind. And um, I personally find that the dogs that run truest to breed are dogs that aren't yet that popular in the United States. Okay. Uh, Take English hunting cockers. I started seeing those dogs about 10 years ago and Mm. they were, Awesome, intelligent, dynamic, easy to train, wonderful little dogs. And there was hardly any of them around. Now they're really popular. I had one in last summer. This is no exaggeration whatsoever. I had one in last summer that would run with my pointer. I mean, I cut him loose and he would run lick for lick with my pointer. How that little dog ran. But that's how independent he was. I mean, for from my house down to the bird field where I typically park my dog trailer during the day when I'm training, mm-hmm. down to the far side of the training pond, 350 yards. If if I cut my uh, my current pointer hawk loose, if I just say, "All right, he's gone. He's just down looking for training birds down there." That little that little English hunting cocker's right by his side, 350 yards away. Okay. wow they didn't do that 10 years ago and look at labradors yeah i mean there's you know the the bench type labrador very stocky very blocky um and there's some field labradors out there that look like little black foxes running around the field Mm -hmm. you know uh incredible diversity in the retriever breed um and in all breeds almost anything that's popular you know Malamas are a, a, a train wreck in action in the United States, with uh, the Belgian Malinois, uh surge in popularity, the people trying to get them, and, and people breeding them. Right,
0: because um, the the John Wick movies and stuff like that. Can you hear me?
1: Oops. Okay. I think, uh, there we go. Yep. You're back. I was yep. I was saying. You were it, saying it, I, I mentioned Malamois. Because of the now, John Wick good. movies, oh yeah, I mean, uh, um, what was it? John Wick, the movie Max, the Seal Team Six dog, the dogs that got Bin Laden, the dogs that got the the latest uh, the latest terrorists and stuff. Um, oh, I want one of those cool attack dogs to guard my family. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you you get a you get a pointer that's poorly bred; it may have a bad nose. It might not be independent. It might not have any interest in birds. You get a retriever that is poorly bred. It has a bad coat. It doesn't like cold water. It doesn't like to retrieve. It has a hard mouth, Uh, limited retrieving desire. Like I said, you get a malinois that's bred badly and you have a dog that gets uh, a dopamine release when it's gripping something with its mouth and you breed those things poorly. Oh, man. You now have an MP4 with a one-pound trigger and no safety.
0: <laughs> you said, <laughs> and it is about to go down. Yeah, that's no, funny.
1: They're 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 incredible dogs, and uh, and I love them. Uh, I I really like all dogs. That's yeah. why I own such a diverse number of dogs. It's very common for. You know, I'm, I'm really uncommon in that I train as many different breeds as I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of bird dog trainers. They might have a couple of retrievers in their kennel. And I know a bunch of retriever trainers that might have a couple of bird dogs in their kennel. You might come here. I have 18 runs. Uh, I use no assistant trainers. I have no kennel help. I've done this myself for 29 years. Uh, I think it's been four years since I had a day off away from client dogs. I go south in the winter. Just what I do. Okay. Not bragging. There are other people that do the same thing. You go out there. Sometimes there'll be, there'll be 14 Labradors. Yeah. Okay. Now is, and is, four is bird
0: dogs. coming south. Is that how you met Charlie? Our mutual friend.
1: Charlie was referred to me by a mutual friend when he had a gun shy issue with his, I believe, Cumberland Spaniel. Yep. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay. Uh, he called me. Cold called me. Was given my number and said, "Hey, I got a, I got a dog that's gun shy." Uh, this guy said, "You could help me out," and over the phone, I walked him through the process uh, over multiple phone calls. Okay. Yeah. And that's what I'm doing with him with his two continental pointers. Sydney and Violet, who are highlighted on his MissingSucks.com uh-huh. website. Um, I'm helping him bring his dogs along. And they're, he's bringing them along much differently than a lot of people would want. Yeah. He, he really wants them to be close working. He likes that continental dog. More power to him. He likes that parallel tail. He likes the dish base. He wants his dog close working. So we I'm working with him to help him uh, develop the dogs that he wants. Right. Okay. Not my business to tell you what you want. I'm right. here to try and help people get what they want, but I'll give them some guidance, you know?
0: Well, he, he definitely speaks highly of you, man. And, and I just wanted to get you on. You were spying, you know, we, we had discussed, have you on way, way earlier, man. And just. I think life got ahead of us and COVID started happening and we lost communication, but man, this was great. I, I, dude, I, I kinda, my mind is blown, man. You were dropping so much information and I still want to record more, um, with you a little bit down the line as well. I still got 50 million different questions.
1: (laughs) I like, honestly, honestly, I haven't even started.
0: Hey man, well let's let's set up for a, another episode. Um, you know, as soon as you possibly can. I I want to keep uh, you know dissecting that man. I want to put this this episode out now. We're almost at two hours now, but you know, let's let's keep this up, man. I'm I'm really interested in in pulling apart some more of your methods.
1: Yeah, I'm happy. Uh, maybe next time we should go to landline because right now, for whatever reason, you're breaking up really badly. Uh, we could go on a landline, but I'm, 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 I'm happy to talk. Um, my, my goal in life, I want people to train dogs in a fair, humane and compassionate method that mm-hmm. gets the most out of the dog while doing it in the, in, within those parameters. Right. Okay. A lot of people seem to think that results validate training. Well, you know, so maybe I got this award or that award or that ribbon, but it took me 10 dogs to do it and I ruined, uh, nine of them. And that one dog finally came through the program and I got that award. Okay. Yeah. Um, in my opinion, how you train validates your result. Absolutely. Okay. I'm, I'm different than a I'm, I'll admit, I'm different than a lot of people. Okay. I tell people every day of the week that, I will send a dog home that's perfect and happy as a clam any day before I send a dog home that's perfect and looks miserable. Right.
0: Well, I I I definitely appreciate that man, and I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that one from you. How you train validates your results. I'm I'm taking that one from you absolutely.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, and and. I'll be sciency. What's your sample size? Okay, <laughs> I have a lot of people. That I've tra- I, I have a lot of people that have trained five or ten bird dogs. Telling I don't know what I'm doing, and I got a pretty big sample size. And people can go to you know the Snowbound Kennels Facebook and look through all those countless videos. And if you jump back a year and go forward, you can see dogs off the check cord, getting gloves thrown and getting pigeons thrown, and then. Uh, stopping on woe in a scent cone and staunch and control, control staunch and steady the wing and shot on their first formal bird. Mm-hmm. I don't break dogs. There's no breaking process. It's like raising a child, Right. you know, get him out of control. And then when he's 21 years old, say, this is how you're going to act. You can do that, but you're probably going to use a lot of pressure and break a lot of kids. Okay, you want to teach them manners as they grow up, as they get more excited and enthusiastic about different things. You show them that they have to maintain these same manners. And there is no big breaking process. Right. I mean, it it, it makes my skin crawl. I had a I had a new client, um, I don't know, six years ago. And she said to me, oh, I had two young dogs. They did so well in Derby but they didn't break well and they washed out and came home and were house pets. And I'm just like, they didn't break well. What does that mean? Okay. That means that however someone tried to get those dogs steady to wing and shot so they could run, you know, uh, open gun dog, whatever they were going to run. Okay. Was, Disruptive enough to those dogs that it basically ruined them. Okay, right. I mean I'm just mortified at that. That hi, I just ruined both your dogs, and I'm telling you, your dogs um, didn't have the gumption to take a training program. Maybe you ought to rethink your training program.
0: Well, okay? yeah, it's it's a lack of accountability in that in that regard.
1: And but, and it, but the other thing is, it's accepted. It's it's kind of accepted. And again, if we're talking trial dogs, I know not all dogs can be competitive uh, winning trial dogs. To ruin a couple derby dogs trying to get them to steady the wing and shot, and people accept that, that it's okay to wash, oh, well, dogs couldn't take the training. Yeah, send them home. I'll get rid of them. Or my favorite, put them in the ground. Okay. Oh, you ruined them in training? I'll put them in the ground. Yeah. Oh, uh, really? Really? Can't we you know can we train a little you know I I think a lot of what I say probably causes a lot of people to not be happy because well, now, three, have, you, have
0: you gotten some, some kind of negative feedback from the stuff you've written in Upland Almanac
1: um, actually all I've ever gotten from Upland Almanac is positive I used to uh, be somewhat active on some discussion forums mm-hmm. and you know, one of two things would inevitably happen. I would be saying, hey, why don't you think about trying this, so try try this technique? And it would be, who the heck are you? How many national championships if you won? And I go, well, zero. And they go, well, why should I listen to you? I'm gonna listen to XYZ and the, the preponderance of doctrine out there, which says do it this way. And I don't wanna listen to you because you haven't won a national championship. Or it would frequently dissolve into I would cause enough cognitive dissonance that they would tee off on me and get furious. And trying to be professional, I'm not going to respond in kind. I'm not going to come down to their level to personal insults. And so I learned that trying to help people out on the Internet where it's a race to see who can come up with the correct answer fastest Mm -hmm. Okay. You ask me a question about dog training. Chances are I'm going to ask you five or six questions before I answer your question, Mm -hmm. but you go to a forum and say, well, my dog's doing this or I want to do this. It's almost like a race to see who can come up with the most correct answer fastest. And again, I'm in that, well, let me ask you five questions first. And I just kind of realized that it was a little too aggravating. It wasn't fun. Um, why am I smashing my, he- my head against the wall trying to help these people for free when they don't want to take my advice? They tell me I'm wrong. And, you know, some people are very thankful, very appreciative. Uh, uh, phone calls, emails, really appreciate your help. But there was enough of the, uh, you haven't won a national, I'm going to listen to you, or you're just some pro in it for the money trying to generate business on this forum why don't you get lost? I'm like, Oh, okay. I'll just go train dogs. Say
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't want no parts of that.
1: Yeah. yeah. You know, well, uh, if if I'm throwing you a life preserver and you're swearing at me, I'm going to stop throwing life preservers.
0: <laughs> right. Well, that seems to be the, you know, the, the, the changing, I hope with this platform where we're kind of opening up the conversation to more, Lighthearted conversation, surely, but, you know, folks that are actually willing to listen to, to more experienced, you know, individuals. That's something that I definitely think is important, you know, and and having that, a- that aspect of mentorship, man, like get out there and, and, and learn from folks, you know.
1: So, you know, you hit on something really big there. You said people with experience. You can do something. For 30 years the wrong way, and yes, you have just that mastered doing something the wrong way for 30 years. That okay? is true. I know people I know people that don't have a lot of experience. They're really good. They make me go, wow, man, I hadn't even given that. I hadn't thought of that. That's an awesome idea. I'm going to try that. Yep. And I've been around people that have trained dogs, you know, decades that I'm not sure I'd let them put gas in my truck, yep. you know? Yeah. Um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's the individual, and people are so concerned about what's the source of my information, not what the information is. Now, yeah. uh, we can get into that. I'm only looking for information that I agree with, which is obviously a problem. But I'm talking about um, just the concept of, I'm talking about a lot of things that go against a lot of very common long-held doctorates. And mm-hmm. I guarantee there'll be people sitting out there going, "Why should I listen to this guy in Vermont? He's never won a national. I've never heard his name." Um, I've written for Upland Almanac for four years after Dave Hughes retired, and I was got a email that said, "Would you like to write for Upland Almanac?" And I said, "Be careful what you wish for, because <laughs> you're you're probably going to hear some things, and your readers are going to hear some things that differ greatly from." The preponderance of training doctrine available in books, in face-to-face, in DVDs, and on the Internet, you know. Um, I have wide open kennel here. If someone says, you're full of BS, you can't do that. You, you can't get a nine-month-old dog staunch and broke without ruining the dog. Hey, rent a room, rent a house, get an RV, come spend the entire summer with me. I'm kind of a shut-in, you know, okay. my, my wife's a clinical pharmacist. I've trained in dogs, by and large, alone all day, every day. I learned how to train dogs at the generosity of other professional trainers and skilled amateurs. If someone wants to come and shadow me for the rest of the summer, man, give me a call. I'm happy to have the company. I might let you, I might let you plant a couple birds for me and give you some help with your dog. I'm well, not hiding. Since, since,
0: since we're on that, how to, you know, where are all the places that folks can contact you?
1: Well, as I said, I, I don't even have a, uh, I don't even have a, a website right now. Uh, there is a snowbound kennel Facebook page. Um, and my, uh, address and number is on there, but my phone number is 802-349-0417. And that's my cell phone. And if I can't pick up because I'm juggling chainsaws, just leave a voicemail and I'll get back
0: to you. Uh Oh, yep. you done created a storm. Now.
1: <laughs> my email is Alex at no kennel.com. Mm-hmm. Kennels is plural with an S no kennels.com. Um, Honestly, calls and texting are the best way to get a hold of me. I generally only check my email once a day. And obviously, I have my phone on me all the time. But yeah, like I said, I I learned to train dogs through the generosity of other professionals. I'm a real pay-it-forward guy. Um, I work with a lot of rescue groups and train their dogs for free to make their dogs more adoptable. Um, Just the way I do things. Just the way I was brought up. Uh, The people I've been around and
0: I try to do the same thing. Okay. Well, we appreciate, we definitely appreciate what you're doing. You made, I think you just flooded us all with, with so much just history, man. It's a whole lot to actually kind of take in and think about, but I appreciate it. I actually want to digest that a little bit.
1: Well, I, you know, I really appreciate uh, you having me on and giving me the platform because Uh, You know, all I'm trying to do is to present some ideas that seem pretty radical to a lot of people, but there's actual science that backs it up. And as I said earlier, that when I got in, learned more about the science, and I'm still quite naive, but when I got into it, the science was backing up with what I was doing and showing me that the things that I didn't think were right, weren't right from a scientific perspective. Um, and it's still intuitive training. I know the four quadrants, of dog training now, big deal. They don't, it doesn't help me one iota knowing the four quadrants. Um, it, it's, an, it's an art, um, but you need to know the, the steps that you need to take. And there's just, there's just a more logical way that if people can just, Don't dramatically change how you train dogs if you've been successful, but if you see some ways that maybe have been on your mind or maybe I said something and you can try and edge in that direction, uh, maybe start using collars on a check cord and overlaying them so the dog understands them contextually rather than just give your dog a non-contextual shock around a bird. And now he does blink birds or he does lie down on point because he smelled a bird and something bad happened. So I'm not going to point birds anymore. Okay. That's where that comes from. Um, I listened to someone tell me how they were a field trial trainer. And if you used an electric collar around birds, you would create a dog that false pointed and it's because you use electric collars. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I believe exactly what he said, but he needed to reform how he said what he said. He should have said, if you use electric collars the way I do around birds, you will create dogs that false point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it's very easy. My yeah. dog smells a birds. Okay, he goes to take a step. I maybe give a big enforcement with a collar to stop it. My dog goes, whoa, that really, really was not fun. And now he smells a pile of feathers, previous spot, maybe some bird droppings or something like that. And he goes, I better be careful here. I think I'm going to play it safe and I'm going to go on point now. We call that false pointing. OK, and that's because the dog is trying to be careful because he had that bad experience. Now, mm-hmm. the trainer might say, well, the dog should. OK, there, there's no shoulds in dog training. There's just what is to say a dog should be able to take this or should take this level of pressure or this intensity with a collar or this frequency or this duration or this cumulative pressure. There's a lot more there's there's five aspects of pressure okay if i say pressure and electric collars people think what intensity am I, am I on that's that's pressure okay well you have intensity is one pressure duration is it momentary is it continuous what's the length of momentary what's the length of continuous you have duration which is pressure you have frequency which is pressure. How often am I pressing this button? Okay. And then they're all combined into cumulative pressure. And then the one no one even considers is what's called background pressure. What's going on? What's going on in the kennel? What's going on in my life? Uh, You know, is, is my, is my trainer in a bad relationship? Um, uh, with his wife and there's lots of yelling and screaming in the house and the kids aren't doing well in school and there's just a lot of tension in the house. Dogs pick up on all that. Um, but what's, what's going on in the kennel? Are they in a high stress kennel where the dogs are under a lot of pressure for whatever reason? And when the trainer shows up, the dogs run into their dog houses, you know, um, a lot of yelling and screaming out at, at, at the kennel and stuff. So that b- background pressure, what's going on on in the dog's life outside of training is a component people never think about, but all of those things combine to give you the picture of the overall pressure that the dog is encountering, not just what the intensity is when you press a button or how hard you pull on
0: a check cord. Right, right. Well, I think that's I I think that's the high note of the of the podcast right there is you know just really understanding where to you know where to gauge that man. Um, Wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It 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 was made to be so simple.
1: It's 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 the more you know, the worse it gets.
0: Mm -hmm, You know, right?
1: Uh, I long for the days when I thought it was really really simple. Um, But I'm a better trainer understanding the complexities now um, and I don't know it just suits my temperament and and uh, the clientele I train dogs for and I can't tell you how much uh, I appreciate your you having me on the show and letting me letting me ramble on I get very hey. long-winded but I mean it's I'm in a position where I really have to explain things at length because they are so different if I just say yeah I use a collar on woe, and don't explain the process people are going to say oh well he must he must have a lot of dogs at blank and false point because that's the information you see so i appreciate you giving me a platform to explain and i'm always available to any of your listeners if they have questions or comments or want to come and pay me a visit and watch some dog training and uh you know, it's, it's, it's kind of handy. I think I'm within an hour and a half of
0: 25 craft beer breweries. In the there, state you of Vermont. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So look that, <laughs> for, for anybody that wants to come up dog. there, That that's you you're luring them up there.
1: Yeah. Well, you're welcome up here. Any time well, I got to dog. come
0: up there anyway, I got some buddies in Vermont that I want to visit. Um, yeah, that'd so, be, that'd be you know, awesome. I would like love it. to come out and watch you work some dogs, man. I seriously would.
1: Yeah, well don't show up
0: here without your dogs. Uh, all right. All right. I'll take you up on that and I bring I come bearing gifts as well.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, cough syrup. Yeah, uh, yeah, there you go. A <laughs> whole, bu- whole, whole bunch of cough syrup. We got we uh we uh I'm I, I'm really going to come with a whole bunch of whiskey and uh and a whole bunch <laughs> of uh beer and we can train dogs and, and 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 get birds up in the air and have a good time cuz I I want to watch you do some of this stuff firsthand, man.
1: Yeah, Well, you know, like I said, a lot of that, it's all little cell phone videos I've taken. And there's, you know, probably hundreds of them on the Mm -hmm. Snowbound Kennel's Facebook page. And if someone doesn't believe that five dogs, six dogs are going to stop and style up on a woe command without collars on, that's the first video on the Snowbound Kennel's video Facebook page. There you go.
0: Thank you very much. Hey, Alec, I appreciate it, man. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Alex Sparks and i'm just blown away at, at, at some of your knowledge and i appreciate you sharing that with, with us alex so with that being said guys that's another episode of the gundog notebook podcast. Thanks, and guys as we wrap up the podcast i just want to say thank you to all my wonderful 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 sponsors my title sponsor onyx next in line, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, AYA Fine Guns, Trinity Bretons, Biomatrix Supplements, my affiliates, Dakota 283 Kennels, Lion Country Supply, and Garmin Fishing Hunt. All right. So stay tuned, guys, for another episode coming up next week in a new house. All right. The Gun Dog Notebook Podcast. Thanks again.